again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, our first in 2022. Uh, this, of course, is a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. On Facebook as well, subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab there, find all the fine NR shows. Listen, leave reviews, especially there on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. We also direct you to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash politicalbeats, where you can support us and help the show stay in the ad-free stance it is. At this very moment, entry-level support there for uh, voting privileges on some matters. Uh, Also, mid-level for early access and at higher audio quality. And upper-level, best friend level for early access, higher audio quality. Monthly exclusive content shows, remastered episodes. Just put the Monkees episode back up after the death of Michael Nesmith. Uh, Playlists and much more. All of that at patreon.com slash political beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? You ever get COVID, Scott? I have not had COVID, my friend. My wife had a breakthrough case and I was not harmed, but I understand you've now lived through it. Uh, I got to tell you, I was inducted into the club and and I got to tell you, when you have this thing, this Omicron variant, they're calling it, uh, you know, simply walking upright is hard enough. You have no idea how hard it is to be running up that hill. <laughs> you can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest on today's program is senior politics correspondent at Vox, Vox.com. Find him on Twitter at AWProCop. He's Andrew Prokop. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And before we get to our artist for today's episode, we allow our guest an opportunity to introduce himself. Tell us about your political beat and how you got involved in this ecosystem, Andrew. Well, I first really started becoming a uh, political obsessive uh, toward the tail end of high school, which for me was 2003, 2004. And that was when I started to read political blogs. And I read kind of everything I could find, every sort of ideological persuasion, just kind of wanting to follow all, all the, the big, great debates of the day from, uh, you know, the mid George W. Bush years. And, um, you know, after that, I went pretty much straight through to um, majoring in political science in college and then w- moved to Washington, D.C., uh, ended up getting a job as a researcher at uh, the New Yorker's D.C. Bureau and uh, was working with journalists there. They really taught me how to do journalism. And so then when um, Vox.com was started back in 2014 by a couple of uh, political bloggers that I had read so long ago, uh, I applied to be a writer there. And now uh, fast forward uh, uh, nearly eight years at this point and um, covering all sorts of political issues. I uh, won't name them all, but uh, <laughs> pretty much my uh, my. Uh, one of my biggest pieces of last year was a big profile of Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, check it out if you're interested in uh, this <laughs> this uh, extremely important political figure. <laughs> uh, and Vox.com at a W Pro Cop for Andrew's work. We invite him onto the program today to talk about Kate Bush, an artist. Uh, well, I'll say more about it later. An artist that was has never really cracked my radar screen, but now having experienced it, I understand why. Jeff is a fan, and we hear now 
from Andrew about why he loves Kate Bush, uh, how you got into her, why she matters, why people should care about this music, Andrew. So it's really every so often I just try to fill in gaps in my musical knowledge and either sample or binge artists I've never heard of before, or don't know well, and, you know, go through those lists of top singles, top albums, and so on. And uh, so in my early 20s, which was a, a little over a decade ago at this point, I came across <laughs> Kate Bush on one of those lists. And the song that was singled out was Wuthering Heights. And I remember I listened to it, and my first reaction at the end was... Huh, that was weird. going for some reason and i remember listening to the kick inside and never forever two of her early albums and and i kept thinking do i like this it's weird it can be silly but but i'm intrigued i like the sound it's interesting to listen to and it's then when i got into her 80s work like the dreaming hounds of love and the sensual world that it really clicked for me i i realized okay she's one of the greats this stuff is really, really fantastic. And I think the reason that is, is, I mean, first of all, she contains multitudes. Like she, she's she got the odd high voice singing style on her mm -hmm. early albums to the bizarre soundscapes of the dreaming to the like high pop mastery of Hounds of Love. But in all of these stylistic shifts, she has a strong and consistent level of you know, musical inventiveness, thoughtfulness and craft, really thinking through how every song should sound, uh, different ways to play with sounds, different sound worlds to explore, uh, different emotions to explore. You know, there are some Kate Bush songs that, that really have this immense grandeur and power to them. Others are are prettier and, and more subtle. Others are just pure fun and others are are weird and interesting. Um you know, in comparing her to sort of other artists, I think the two that I actually view her as most um, spiritually similar to are David Bowie and Kanye West, because those are both two artists who, you know, their music can be very different, but hmm. they they approach each album and each stage in their career as as sort of not not resting on their laurels, looking for what is the new thing that I can do with this project? And they were interested in new sounds. And one of the things I love most about Kate Bush is that she becomes a real studio obsessive, a production obsessive. And she she becomes sole producer on all of her albums starting in the early 80s and, um, and, and just spends years trying to craft 
a sound that she's happy with, a product that will be something that feels new and fresh and uh, and something that is really good. So, you know, she's versatile and and above all, she's she's interesting. And another thing I'd add is that, you know, she never entered the phase of the rock star's lifespan where you just start kind of coasting, phoning it in and putting out schlock just to make money. Like she's been following her muse uh, sometimes to stranger places, sometimes to less successful places. But but I think overall, she's had a very high uh, hit rate, you know, at, when it comes to making really compelling musical products over the course of her career. And I do think that carries through into the 21st century. It doesn't just stop at the 1980s. more what Andrew says about how Kate Bush just sort of doesn't seem like she's coasting. Her most recent product, her most recent I guess I call it a product, it's a really weird album. It's not like <laughs> any of the rest of her work. And, you know, I'm not even sure if I'd call it an album, but even though I don't like it as much, I don't think of it as like, oh, well, she's lost the plot here. I just think, well, that's an experiment that didn't quite work. That's the feeling you get about a woman whose entire life musically has basically been devoted to experimental art. And she's never been afraid to pursue that no matter where it takes her. The way I first found Kate Bush was actually through another guy who has similarly devoted his life to experimental art, although in the pop world. And that, of course, is Peter Gabriel. Now, of course, Peter Gabriel is going to be the way that I found Kate Bush. Anybody listening to this show knows that Genesis is my favorite band of all time. And that I love Peter Gabriel and that I keep talking obsessively about how we need to do a Peter Gabriel solo episode. Um, but, of course, one of his most famous hits is a song I've discussed on other episodes called Don't Give Up. And who is the person he's duetting with on that? It says FT dot featuring Kate Bush. I got so back in 1987 or 8 or so. That's the first time I ever heard her. But it was just a name to me. Because how on earth else were you going to hear Kate Bush if you were an MTV kid in America in the 1980s? She was if she was it. That was it. That was the only way you ever heard her name. I never heard running up that running up that hill back in the 1980s or 90s. I never even heard Games Without Frontiers until I started buying Peter Gabriel albums. Because you know, that was maybe played in 1980 or 81 and it, it wasn't played afterwards. So you have a woman who basically flew under the radar, but the minute I discovered her because I started reading about Gabriel and then I started reading about this woman, Kate Bush. And the thing that I always said about Bush is like, well, she's, she's really weird. 
and there were some people, the British press in particular, would write about her. It's like, look at, the, look at this silly lady. She's this this crazy cat lady, essentially. Even though back she's twenty twenty two when they're writing this about her, because of her obvious pretensions. And I finally said, forget it. And I went and I bought the only record that they had at the store, and it was the Hounds of Love. When I was a child, Now on, I was a Kate Bush fan. Took one listen to the second song on Hounds of Love, which is the title track, where she's just standing there screaming in rapture about being chased by love and running away from it, but then falling prey to it. You know, this splendid joy, these pounding drums, and I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe it. I had never heard this, that this, again, had been one of these great secrets, like, the color of spring and spirit of Eden by talk talk that had just been kept away from me on the other side of the pond. And at that point, yeah, I bought Never Forever, bought the Dreamin', bought Sensual World, Kate Bush super fan, and I've basically had everything she's put out since well, I mean, that was the thing. When I became a fan, it would have been something around the year 2000, 2002. So she hasn't really added that much to the discography since then. Um I'm just, you know, in love with a person who embodies the soul of an artist, a soul of an art rocker, the soul of a person who does it their own way. When I think of her, I think of you know, the only person I can think of as a true progenitor in music is maybe someone like Scott Walker. Uh, and we can think of the obvious people who have imitated her since then. I mean, Tori Amos literally does not exist as an artist without Kate Bush. But, you know, it's hard to think of anybody who is truly her peer because to her, she, to me, she's one of the most singular, sort of, sort of almost miraculous creations. An actual musical genius with literary gifts that somehow put it all together and kept it all together and to this day seems to remain a wonderfully normal person in real life as well. Scott, I know this is your favorite artist. I wouldn't say it's my favorite. I would say I just had uh, Kate Bush, before we prepped for this show, was someone I, I absolutely knew the name 
and uh, was aware of her presence and had some idea of perhaps what she sounded like. But she never popped up on my, uh, as I said earlier, on my radar screen, like people would say, oh, you like this person, you'd love Kate Bush, right? That, that was not happening. And so there was never a particular reason for me to go down the rabbit hole and find out more about her and her music until prepping for this particular episode. And listening, look, I absolutely understand Jeff's love for Kate Bush. If I'm if I'm pointing out touch points for her as an artist, it's like a who's who of of your favorite bands. It's it, it is Bowie, as as Andrew said. It's talk talk, as you pointed out. Uh, certainly, there's some some genesis and sort of the the performative theater aspect to her music. That it's all there. What I didn't anticipate, especially early on, was the hurdle slash difficulty of getting over that voice that that operatic over the top voice that she sings with in those first uh, what three <laughs> albums or so i anticipated it <laughs> that was tough that was difficult and i I'm going back and forth with jeff saying i gotta try again i gotta try again we talked at our uh our most recent uh exclusive content episode how long does it take until you know whether you like something or not and i say generally three three times three times and it took until the third time to begin to understand what was happening, especially on those early Kate Bush albums. They were difficult for me to, to wrap my arms around. Within the context of the rest of her career, you do see this, this very clear picture emerge as someone even from the age of, essentially, as we'll talk about in a minute, 15 years old, uh, a singular artist, confident in her abilities, uh, and very much an individual. You know, she, she was helped by David Gilmore and others in these early uh, early albums, but then, as Andrew said, took, took control very quickly in terms of producing and knowing what she wanted these songs and these albums to sound like. Is she weird? Yes, yeah, she's weird, but she's focused. The weirdness doesn't, isn't sort of odd and, and off the wall. It comes in ways that are um, understandable, again, the more you know about her and her work. Uh, listening through. Uh... You know, listen, one thing just to jump in here to try to explain maybe a little bit about Kate Bush is to, I assume that most people in our audience will not be familiar with her stuff before they listen to her because, frankly, most of our listeners are Americans and most Americans just don't know Kate Bush. Um, imagine this is a crude stereotype, but an accurate one. Imagine that really wacky theater girl you knew in high school, <laughs> the really serious one who wore like a lot of makeup. And, you know, she was always reading like, you know, 19th century English literature and doodling in her poetry book. And she could play the piano. And she, of course, was, you know, she did musical theater as well. And she loved to dance. And she was that triple threat. And she was like super almost weirdly like laser focused and tense. And the thing you always wanted to do was laugh at her because she takes herself far, far too seriously. Like, who is this, this 16-year-old girl thing she is? When she discovered new art at the age of 16. She's uncovered any great insider secrets. And the freaky thing about Kate Bush is, okay, imagine if that person actually was genuinely, like, terrifyingly <laughs> talented at a young age. Because that's that's the only way you can start by explaining where she comes from. Is that this like she was literally like a thirteen year old prodigy, born into just like a very bucolic middle class existence. There, I think her father was a banker or something like that, and you know her mother was um, 
I don't know. We had very domestic bliss, happy family, like a like a nice rural place, you know, with her older brothers. Uh, and she just happened to also have like, probably like a 165 IQ. So she was playing instruments and writing songs and writing verse. And like, in, when she was starting at the age of like 10, she just like composed reams upon reams of songs. And she started recording them, sent a few demos around mostly. Who, what is this, a 13-year-old kid? Nope, throw that in the trash. Somehow, like one of her primitive home demos got its way to Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd who heard it actually sat through it. He was probably stoned, you know, the way Pink Floyd guys was like, <laughs> what are you going to do? Hey, 13 year old kid said a tape and hey, put it on, see what happens. And then he heard Kate Bush singing. songs he dropped what he was doing and he said what am i listening to he could not believe that somebody that young had written something this focused and this mature at that age so he said okay we got to go find this person and he basically it's one of the great feel-good stories of rock you know he basically took her under his, his wing and he said got her a contract almost like a services contract just from emi just saying here sit here for about two years don't do anything you're just not ready for success right now so she didn't even really start getting her recording career underway until she was like, you know, you know, she was really kind of old and over the hill at the age of 17, um, which is where we come to her first album, which she called The Kick Inside. And it's like this collection of songs that has just been, you know, stored up over the years she's had them. Some of them she'd even recorded back with Gilmore in like 1975. It's 1978 now. She can basically have her pick of any studio musician she wants. She's got like a gentle hand. I think it's like Gilmore's friend is like producing it. Um, and she comes out with this very weird, very unique. And I think incredibly gifted debut album andrew uh what are your thoughts on the one that you know and back then introduced the world to one of the weirdest talents they were ever going to meet so this is a really good album i think it's an especially good debut album it the beginning of it 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 kind of feels like you've entered into another world, those first four tracks, especially. It's it's not like, you know, it's, it's not a totally alien, different world. It's sort of like the the Star Trek mirror universe where Spock has a goatee and he's also <laughs> evil. But like a, a lot of these are just these songs. They're just like off a bit. Like that's not how a song should go or it's not how it should be sung like there's well, that has five too many melodic ideas in a row strung together before it repeats itself yeah yes and you know i think a lot of 
the features, most of them that are core to who Kate Bush is as an artist are in here from the start. Um, the songwriting, the, um, the unusual singing style, which we, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss at more length, uh, you know, whether, whether you think it's, it's nails on a chalkboard or whether you think it's weird. Like this, this is indisputably a case of um, a teenager inventing a way to sing that cannot be mistaken for anyone else singing. And, you know, uh, I personally am glad that uh, she later branched out to uh, to other ways of singing. Uh, but I think it works very well for this album and as, uh, you know, a supplement to the overall oddness of this album. Lyrically, she's a, a strange, somewhat off kilter, artsy, dreamy storyteller. Uh, yeah. The songs are written by her for her voice. Um you know, every song on all of her albums was written by her, we'll say. And um, they're full of these loopy leaps up and down from very high places. Uh, they're like, you know, reflections in a funhouse mirror of a, of an, of a typical melody. Uh, and, and they're showing off that, like, those odd sounds she makes uh, on the high notes, especially these, those um, and those... Um, uh, Scott said operatic, uh, I would almost say like these choral vowel pronunciations, mm. uh, like, you know, uh, these as... aerial swoops that she does. I mean, the example, yeah. the example to me of that, that, that's so perfectly, and this is a song I, I practically worship because I think it was written specifically to showcase what she can do with her voice is kite on the first half of this album where, you know, it's the song is about like wanting to be a kite, almost like bobbing in the wind and sailing up and away from your troubles. Right. So, Chris, what does what does arty girl Kate decide to do? Hey, let's make it a reggae song, right? That, that'll be natural <laughs> for me. Uh, it should not work. Somehow that beat manages to work because it feels like it is a kite bobbing its way up and off the ground, and her voice goes like, you know, you know, you my belly, or she's goes in the speak part, and then when she starts singing that chorus, the I can't even hope to imitate this the die she goes up to aerial heights and very swooping lows and then back up and she sounds exactly like a kite in the air and it is it it is it is basically a show it's it's just she's showing off this is bravado she's showing you what she can do with that voice and what she can do with it is so amazing is it's it's deranged but it's it's extremely fun and uh and it's very good uh and that's the case i think for all of those those first four songs which are so so strange uh moving the saxophone song 
strange phenomena and and kite. There's this through line to all of them. And then it leads into the man with the child in his eyes, which she had actually recorded uh, two years prior. Uh, she had gone into that initial uh, recording session with EMI and uh, and recorded man with the child in his eyes and uh, and the saxophone song. And uh, I think she was uh, 16 at that point. And uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's it's just she she uses she uses a more ordinary singing voice for the man with the child in his eyes as compared to uh, so much else on the album. But it's it those two so those well. two early songs, those two saxophone song. Also, she, she has a much more natural tone on mm-hmm. it, and it, it's what it makes you realize that she didn't sort of develop that affect until like a, a year or so later after she'd recorded those. <laughs> Because those are from '75, and then somewhere in the middle, she she got the cackle voice, you know, out of the one. Like that didn't come until a little bit later. And here I again, my girl, wondering what nurse I'm doing here. Maybe he doesn't love me. I just took a trip on my love for him. The other thing about uh, these tracks, especially on the first half, uh, is that I do want to talk about the production because, you know, the songwriting and the lyrics and the singing, all of that is Kate Bush here. There's no early career struggling to find her musical voice. Like, that's all here. She's going to deepen and richen and evolve as her career goes on, but it's already there. What's not here yet is the production, and that's because she is not the producer on this album. Uh, Andrew Powell is. And uh, Andrew Powell, he's he's not that much older than her. He's in his late 20s when this album is recorded, but he's very much a pro. He has a classical background. He's moved into pop and rock arrangements, and, um, and he's very much more established than she is, who's a nobody at this point. So... Kate supplied the songs with her piano and vocals and Powell would write the arrangements and craft the overall sound that the other musicians would bring. And I think Powell's production on this album is is really good. There's a lush overall sound on a lot of tracks with the piano spotlighted uh, rock instruments, usually at the core orchestral instruments coming in when needed. Uh, I think there are even moments of, of brilliance, like some of the touches on Wuthering Heights, like that that bass coming in right before the chorus. Uh, Powell knows what he's doing, but he's not Kate Bush. And I do think that the, uh, the arrangements and the overall sound of this album beyond her vocals, uh, they are a bit more conventional and they lack the element of inspired wackiness, madness, weirdness that, uh, that she's going to bring to the albums that she will produce. So like the, the arrangements are almost too good in a traditional yeah, sense yeah. to be what she is going to do. It's, but, you it's know, okay, that's but not they, a knock on, but they do have on Powell. He's a very good collaborator for right. her to be working with at this point in her career because she didn't know how to do any of that yet. She is learning at this point. 
you know, they, but they have a certain charm. Those those arrangements, like they're, they're at the uh, the ending of "Moving," is my favorite part of the song. I love that song so much. This is a song, by the way. It's dedicated to her mime teacher, Lindsay Kemp, who is, by the way, David Bowie's mime teacher. All these little strands come together. Um, but you know, when she's singing the you know the soul, and then it's almost like there's like you know seventeen little demonic you know you know Kate Bush elves coming in the background saying la 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 with this incredibly elaborate backing vocal arrangement, and uh, you know, and, and Bush actually said she's like you know you know Powell, I will you know I want to produce my stuff, but he did let me get everything I wanted to get out vocally. And you have those very crisp, clear little like dancing lines that are you know, clearly written out on the page. I like that aspect of it. be interested in hearing your take on this album as somebody who's just like completely unfamiliar is this first of all is did you start at here did you start at square one yes so like what did this felt like getting hit by a bowling ball or something i was uncomfortable with uh, a lot of it um because i i you know i should like it it's good right it's kate bush and i wasn't quite understanding what was happening part of that actually probably is uh, not blamed on, but due to production, because to Andrew's point, you know, th- this this album is produced like it's, uh, you know, a late 70s singer-songwriter. For, you know, the lines are very clean, instruments are clean, uh, you know, uh, we just did Warren Zevon, right? You could kind of swap the production of the two albums. It would sound I, alike. It would sound very... I was about to say, it has a nice Carole King kind yes. of a, like background feel yes. to it. You're right. And she's not She's not that artist, right? She did the best she could with those with that situation. She would eventually take over production herself. She did do everything vocally she wanted, but musically, um, you know, it, it doesn't quite fit. I think what she, what what she would want to have in in her head if she were in charge. Um, the beginning of this album, I think, is far uh, superior to the back half of the album. You guys talked about a lot of those early songs. The one I'll point to being. Uh, something that, that grabbed me early on is the saxophone song, and part of that probably is because it is in the slightly lower register. It's not in that big, big voice she was using for so much of this of this album, and it's just this uh, this this song about being in a in a club alone, a club listening to the saxophone, and, and not not a player necessarily, but the instrument itself is what she loves and how it makes her feel. And the funny thing for me here is is we we hear the saxophone playing and. Um, I got to tell you, it's not great, right? This is not some sort of tour de force saxophone solo. It's kind of bleating and and just sort of blurting and and unconventional. So what does this say about Kate Bush that that's the, or at least Kate Bush, the character in the song, 
that this is the kind of saxophone she likes. I think it very early. It says it's entirely intentional because right. she returned to this exact right. theme a couple albums later with violin, where she took the violin and instead of making it sound like a violin, she made it sound like a punk instrument uh, <laughs> and made it sound this just giant squall, nasty, atonal noise. Well, she wrote this song because she says, I just, just I like saxophones. I think they're sexy as a concept. And so I wrote this song about them. And then, yeah, I think that bleeding sound is entirely intentional. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. Never see that you had One of the second half that I, I will highlight is Oh to Be in Love, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. It has this sort of Baroque, like harpsichord, uh, kind of kind of glittering feel to it. Lyrically, a romance that sort of you know gives you life, that, that sparks life. I, I love that chorus where it's not just Kate, but you have those backing vocals where they're almost laughing when, you know, oh, 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 to be in love. Uh, and Never Get Out Again is the follow-up. Uh, that is really one of the fine moments on this debut album, I think. Oh, 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 to be in love. Never get out again. Oh, 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 to be in love. Never get out again. Oh, 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 to be in love. Never get out first half of the album is perfect you know, everything from moving to uh the that song that ends the first half is is flawless there isn't a weak song on it um the problem is and i think scott might have mentioned this earlier is that the second half is largely unmemorable uh them heavy people is a fascinating song another one set to a reggae beat because she just can't help herself uh which is about of all things reading you know like you know heavy philosophers and moral thinkers like christ and gurdjieff gurdjieff was this guy who was the brief fascination of a whole host of like you know post-punk people on the english art rock scene at that time like robert fripp and peter gabriel and whatnot uh and so here's kate bush's song about reading gurdjieff it's a little bit silly uh but it has a nice little beat to it the rest of that stuff even the title track uh, isn't memorable musically in a way that so much of the rest of your music is going to be. The Kick Inside, the title track, is uh, a dark-ass piece of music. I give her, I give her credit for Moxie. She'll never it's laugh. It's the prettiest, nicest-sounding song about 
incest between siblings leading to a pregnancy and abortion and suicide I'd ever written. <laughs> yes! Yes, boy, you did a better job of summarizing the plot of that one as I than I ever could. And of course, this isn't actually like a, a new concept. This is an old murder ballad, a, a child ballad from like, I'd say like, you know, 17th, 18th century England called Lesiwan, I believe was the original name, like a Scottish ballad. And that's where she took the original subject matter and she just recast it. And the kick inside that she's referring to is the kick of her, her own fetus, you know, her incest baby that is going to die with her as she commits suicide. She's singing from the point of view of that narrator. Uh, wow, that's a topic. I have to say I salute that. Your sister, I just wish the rest of the music on the second half was any good. I also have to notice, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, we've gone this entire time and we haven't mentioned the number one hit single off of this album. This album, would you believe it, actually sent a number one to the charts in the United Kingdom. Not only that, it was the first number one hit ever by a woman singing her own song that she had written. Hadn't been one before this. And it's a song about 19th century literature wuthering heights where, i just want to know where was the first time each of you encountered this song uh last week you <laughs> oh okay well then you you your head exploded how about you andrew well i mentioned it was the first kate bush song that i sampled because i saw it on some list of top right. singles somewhere and i thought it was very strange uh but but you know it 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 grew on me, obviously. Uh, they, you know, I will forgive anyone for thinking the first time they hear her saying like "out on the windy, windy moors" in that almost cackly voice sounds like a witch. You're like, "What is this? Is this a joke? Is this an imposture?" It's almost like it's daring you to not listen, and then in a very clever way, maybe that's how it gets your attention, because then it goes through the story in a very it is like a magnificent way of summarizing the emotional core of Wuthering Heights uh, in two verses and somehow takes you know, a great a, a great verse and then sends it into this pre-chorus this Wuthering Wuthering Heights and before you know it you're singing along to a song that whose chorus begins with the words Heathcliff <laughs> uh, I, I just don't understand how she got away with writing a song about you know you know an emily bronte book and took it to number one and i think that it's the sincerity that somehow gets it across well and some important background here is that uh emi did not want this to be the single they wanted james and the cold gun to be the single and uh kate bush begged them to make wuthering heights the single she really really fought for it and there is a, a story in um uh, it's a book called Under the Ivy by Graham Thompson, really good biography of Kate Bush. Uh, uh, he interviews an executive who was there at the time, and uh, the executive was like, well, eventually I just decided to indulge her because um, 
I figured she's more of an album's act. So, you know, the single probably would flop, but, uh, but whatever, it would make her happy. And then it became a massive hit. And apparently it was spooky to the people there. Like they, they were like, wow, who is going to second guess her again? Well, England has this unique like appetite for like these weird eccentrics, these sort of homegrown eccentrics, especially when they're writing about very English topics. Mm-hmm. I also think about like you know Ray Davis and the Kinks and stuff like that. Um, and so, so maybe that's why like this almost almost like a novelty song. Like, well, here's a teenage girl writing a book report about <laughs> Wuthering Heights. It's like but it's it, like it's the British version of Convoy, something like that. <laughs> no, but it's that's the thing is that it's not a novelty song no, at no. all. There's this beautiful line that sums up like so many complex emotions where she says, you know, how could you leave me when I needed to possess you? I hated you. I loved you too. Like, ah, there's like a lot of, she's, she's like 16 when she wrote that. And she's writing about a book which she had not ever read. She'd only seen the TV movie. Uh, and she's writing from the, from the point of view of a dead spirit that haunts the Moors. Somehow the whole thing, you know, it manages to get past the ridiculousness of that conceit and sell you on, uh, you know, a very writerly concept that eventually becomes about like, you know, lost souls and, 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 you know, tormented people just trying to find their way home. And, you know, to be able to convey that kind of passion in such a literary way when you're that young, well, this is how we knew this this person was going to end up being Kate Bush. This brings us to what I guess everybody sort of universally agrees is the, uh, the the big disappointment in Kate Bush's catalog, the rushed second follow-up album called Lionheart. Uh, you know, the first one took what four years to assemble. I guess the second one took uh, eight months. Uh, she would never work this fast again. This one also came out in 1978. Uh, you know, and it's not like she was on tour. Kate Bush and touring would be a very interesting conceit. We'll talk about soon. Um, but she just was in a hurry to get the next one out. So what it basically is, is the way it's characterized, at least, is that it's mostly outtakes from or songs that didn't make the cut for the first record, and maybe a few that came together, you know, quickly over time. Uh, but it's just a pale copy of the first one. Now I found that I think it's I think it's actually a little bit better than that. But there's just no question it's the only one of these albums that we'll be discussing at all that to me doesn't. It lacks a real sense of its own character. I don't. Um, I, I know that there that is the uh, sort of general line on Lionheart that it's disappointing. It's not as good as the first album, and she was not happy with it. Felt rushed to to get it out by the by the, by the record label. Um, I, I don't think it's my least favorite uh, album of hers in her career. There are a couple of look. There are a couple of very high points, I, I, I think, and some of the rest sort of run together. I have a tougher time remembering a number of these songs. They don't stick with me the way that those on the first album do and, and those on future albums will in the future. Um, 
but I, you know, most of these songs were written before the debut even happened. So there's some leftovers here. There are three specifically written for Lionheart, including Symphony in Blue, which is the first song on the, on, on the record. Uh, but you know, production-wise, very similar. Uh, that, that can't be a surprise. Again, coming so quickly after the first album, which again was such a big success. You want to replicate that a bit, of course, if you're the record uh, company and and do it all over again. And I think there are again some some nice highlights here um you know wow was one of the singles here and it's you know she said it's it's kind of her attempt to write a pink floyd song so it it is sort of spacey and it pays off big with that slow build into a big big chorus i can't hear that at all i've seen that line i can't hear it in the scene whatever you know listen (laughs) i have i have very bitter thoughts about that song so keep going (laughs) Uh, but I, I, yeah, I, I do like that. Uh, you know, my favorite uh, track here is probably Kashka from Baghdad, which yes. is yeah. this uh, wonderful story. And there are many times when the stories uh, take me as much as the songs do themselves. There's, there's only a handful of times that I have a note somewhere in the future where I think the music outstrips the lyrics. Uh, but this is a great, you know, this is a great story. This this house with with two people. We certainly read that they're they're probably gay, right? And, and have this extreme amount of privacy. They don't go for walks. Uh, they don't go outside. Um, and, and yet, people from the outside just see them laughing and loving and having this wonderful life. And eventually, our narrator says, "I long to be with them. Let me in your love." Um, and set to this wonderful melody, a very deliberately unfolding song. I, I think that's my favorite piece here. Push Your Foot on the Heartbreak is one. That's one of the more up-tempo sort of rocking songs here. Yeah, that's as close as she ever got to, to rock. I, I like that song a lot, but it it's weird. I somehow feel like she's even more comfortable doing reggae than she is doing this kind of music. <laughs> There's only reason. a handful of a note somewhere in the future where you'd say, oh, yeah, that that's that's a rock move, right? This is one of those very few right. where, yeah, that, that's a rock move. Uh, but there are a lot of places, I think, that just sort of, I mean, that sort of exists. You know, it's it's uh, something like Full House um, is is fine. Uh, coffee, uh, home ground is, you know, there's some vocal acrobatics there, especially the final third there where she's really working things out. But on the whole, uh, you know, as I said, it's not my least favorite album of her, of her career, but I certainly understand the disappointment from the first album. But I think the, the, the highlights here are still pretty strong. I'll summarize quickly just to tag on to what Scott says. I think that, you know, You've got to think a lot of these songs in the, in the, the way you think of them as like your know, the, theatrical pieces. 
there's sketches. And I think the problem with a lot of them is that they're somewhat inert sketches. One of the things about Kate Bush you have to understand is she doesn't always <clears throat> write autobiographically. You know, it, later on, there are times when you're going to be very tempted to think, oh, that's clearly her talking about herself. Now, the secret with her is that oftentimes she really is, but she usually filters it through some conceit, some sort of, you know, sort of maybe a third an imaginative conceit that gives her third party distance enough to sort of find the emotionally honest way of entering into any scenario to say the things she wants to say. Now, when she's young like this, a lot of it just ends up feeling stagey. So like Coffee Home Ground is you know, kind of a nice idea. It has that very with a Lottie Lenya kind of a cabaret, Weimar kind of a stomp to it. But at the end of the day, it just feels like sort of creativity for creativity's sake. Some of the ones that hit on themes that, that will end up resonating a lot more with her is something like In Search of Peter Pan. You seem to notice that she keeps coming back to one topic in particular, which is the role of men and whether they're young boys or they're adults, whether they're fathers or sons or brothers, the role of men in her life seems to be a subject that she seems that she finds fascinating. And she's going to be finding this very fascinating in an even greater way as she moves on throughout her career. Um, but I hate wow so much. That song insults my intelligence. <laughs> that song is the source of every negative stereotype people have ever had about Kate Bush. It's like, oh, here's this loopy chick with the big, bold eyes going, wow, wow, wow. The choral hook is actually lame in a way that Kate Bush rarely is. She's very, she's almost never cheap melodically. This would just go up and down, up and down. Almost like, like the person singing it is stoned. Or drunk or something like that i i find it to be her least deserving hit single of all time uh so i've never liked it that much oh, yeah, you're amazing. We think you are really cool we give you a part but you'd have to Other than that, I'll say Hammer Horror is hugely underrated. That's a good should one, have, too. Yeah, yeah. Should have been the hit single from this album. And, Andrew, take it away. I do think it's her weakest album. Uh, I think that's mainly because we get less of Weird Kate and more of, of Twee Kate. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of goofiness. There's a lot of um, uh, just kind of treakliness. Yeah. Uh, Oh, in, England, in, in the my warm, Lionheart. In the warm room means that those for me. Recorders. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another one, too. Um, a lot of these songs are just a little forgettable to me, but yeah. I, I will call out as ones I really enjoy some of the ones that have already been mentioned. Kashka from Baghdad, in, in addition to what Scott said, um, the instrumentation is, uh, is really distinct and interesting. Uh, if you look at the credits, there is her older brother, Patty Bush, uh, she has two older brothers, Jay, who is a poet, and we'll meet him later, and uh, Patty Bush, who um, who is on almost every Kate Bush album playing 
if you line up the list of all of the instruments he plays, uh, it would be a very long list because he um, he has an interest in uh, exotic or foreign in- instruments. So he's here credited as playing the strumento di porco, the mandocello, and the pan flute in Kashka from Baghdad. Uh, but it lends a very distinct sound profile to, uh, to this song. Um, I think um, some of the most blatantly ridiculous on the album actually work the best like don't put your foot on the heartbreak uh it's it's a lot of fun i love how it it revs up with that electric guitar into this chorus with her singing like a maniac and and how she yells uh the last time around come on the that third time and and and, and she's yelling it you know uh, the third time but somehow she makes it 10 times more deranged than than the previous time she did And it's great. I do like Coffee Homeground. Uh, the story is that she is singing from the point of view of a delusional person who thinks that everyone is trying to poison him. Hmm. And apparently she had met a cab driver um, who, who who claimed to her that everyone was trying to poison him. And she's uh, she's sort of spoofing that. And the execution is ridiculous, but... Uh, but it does sound totally different from anything else she's done so far. And, uh, you know, that, that chorus hook does stick with me, how she sings, like, in a pot of tea. It's, uh, it's, I, I do think it's fun. But yeah, on this album, I I think uh, overall, uh, I'm glad that she shifted to a bit of a a different mode um, uh, starting with her next album. Well, actually, what she did after this was instead she finally got her touring band together and went out on the first Kate Bush tour. (laughs) And then she uh, promptly declared that it would be the last Kate Bush tour. Yes, prior to, I guess, actually, you know, you know, 2014 was not that long ago when she shocked the world by coming out of retirement. But up until that point, Kate Bush had gone on tour exactly once, once in her life. And you can already imagine why she would be the kind of person who'd only ever want to go on tour once <laughs> because she didn't want to play like in a rock band playing rock songs. No, that's not Kate Bush. 
she wanted a dance show, a dance spectacular. She wanted to be able to be, she actually pioneered, you know, like wireless mics, the kind that Peter Gabriel would kind of become synonymous with in a later era. Uh, she was the one who first started testing this technology out because she didn't want to be anchored to a stand or have to sit at a piano. She wanted to do her like famous wavy dance, which is, I can't believe it. There's so many aspects to Kate Bush as an artist we haven't discussed dance her visual presentation was a huge part of her success and her way of standing out in you know her music videos at a very early age from Wuthering Heights onwards and it's going to you see it showing up in these stunning music videos she does all throughout her career she just felt like you know you know this is a just as equally valid a way to express what the meanings of these songs were and get them across so what did this show do it was like a three-act spectacular it was almost as much theatrical as it was musical there were poetry readings in between songs and this sounds like a recipe for disaster um but as a matter of fact apparently it just got just rapturous reviews and everybody loved it they did recordings of it i've heard them i guess i you know it, it's kind of like you had to be there you know you have to be there visually to see it but yes the videos a, are are online if, uh, yes. if anyone's interested you can you can watch uh, the but it, thing. it it's it's not a rock concert it's a theatrical presentation uh it also gave her time to stall i think is what matters because what comes after this is her her third album uh, oh, could I just mention on the tour oh, yeah. first? Uh, oh, just, yeah, sure. just a great historical tidbit is that after the kick inside, she was offered the opportunity to open for Fleetwood Mac on the closing leg of the Rumors tour. Wow. And she said yeah. no because, uh, and I think that was a good move because I don't know how she would have been received there, honestly. But uh, uh, imagine but, uh, a bunch of people coming out there to hear dreams <laughs> and then they're presented with kite. Oh, God. Oh, bad But she bad said scene. no because. <laughs> because she uh, because she had those ambitions for for a far more elaborate production already, uh, and then uh, as far as why she didn't tour again, apparently there was no deliberate decision, no announcement where she said, "I'm never going to have a concert again." She thought that she would probably do two more albums and then do another tour, but it just kind of kept not happening for what turned out to be 35 years, <laughs> and. I guess another thing that's worth pointing out here is that you see her taking more and more control over her career. Kate Bush is still kind of a weird, arty nobody. Freak number one hit, right? Second album didn't do that well. But she's going to just say, no, I, I'm not going on tour. Why? Because that's just not how I roll. Sorry. And she got away with it. I don't know how she managed to. I think some people sort of resented her as being EMI's golden girl, you know, Oh, do they, they they treat her like she's a little princess and she can't do any wrong? It definitely was like something that was spoken or muttered about in the music press at the time. But I think maybe EMI realized that they had something truly special on their hands because what happens next is well, actually, I think what happens next is that Kate Bush makes somebody meets a person who's going to end up becoming a lifelong acquaintance and influence, and that's Peter Gabriel. And uh, the way they meet is on the sessions for Peter Gabriel 3, an album we've mentioned probably 30 times already on this show without doing a Peter Gabriel episode. Um, 
And what is Peter Gabriel doing? He's recording a song called uh, Games Without Frontiers. It's a parody of this European game show called Games Without Frontiers. It's also it's about like nuclear war and whatnot. But it has the little hook. You know, you want to get a little sing-song voice. Kate Bush volunteers to sing it. single for him what's more oh she's on there that, too i didn't know that yeah she's there she she sings on that she sings on no self-control uh but what's more important is that while she's at those sessions she just pokes her head around the corner and she says hey pete what is that and what she's looking at is something called the Fairlight cmi it's a synthesizer system and it is the system that is going to fundamentally and forever alter the way kate bush makes music and maybe not just the sound of her music, but the style of her music, the ethos behind her music. It is basically something that permits her to be a one-man band over time as she learns to master it. If she so desires to set up anything and to conceptualize anything, to routine it at home alone with nobody else to bother her and no time limits and no studio heads looking in. Now, some of that is in the future, but you can hear the effects of this change on her sound immediately with never forever her 1980 album this is where she steps into a different world there is a true break a jump it's not a giant leap but it is a noticeable leap from the end of lionheart to the beginning as babushka fades in on never forever kate bush has taken a leap forward Very close to being. Uh, oh God, it was so. I I won't reveal my final picks, but this came so close to being one of my <laughs> picks for her top two at the end. Um, Andrew, what do you think of this one? This is the album where she really starts focusing on not just the songwriting and the singing, but in creating unique sound worlds for each song. So Andrew Powell is gone. She is uh, 
she is lead producer. She, uh, the engineer for Lionheart, uh, John Kelly, is also listed as producer. And that will be the last time anyone not named Kate Bush will be a producer on the Kate Bush album. But she's clearly in the driver's seat here. She is doing things that are more blatantly odd and weird as, um, as compared to anything she's done previously. And part of that is the Fairlight, which she uses on several tracks. She did not yet own one. She borrowed one and she had it for part of the sessions, but she didn't get to, you know, eventually she'll have her own and she'll get to just, just <laughs> use it constantly and, and everything will go into it. But, um, uh, and, and also I think she was just getting started exploring what it could do here. And, you know, one of the things that she gets really into is how you could record a sound like glass breaking or a whistle or a gun cocking and then play it back on different pitches matched to the keys of the keyboard. And, you know, pretty easy to do these days with modern technology, but it was pretty mind blowing to her back then. Um, so you have the fair light. You also have something that she will do throughout the rest of her career, which is this tendency to mix and match her musicians based on the particular sound she wants. And we haven't mentioned yet that um, that Kate Bush uh, has a, a, a bass player named Del Palmer, who was part of um, her her touring band, uh, the part of uh, what was called the KT Bush band that, sh that did a few gigs before the kick inside and uh, is also her boyfriend and who she will date for 15 years. And so Del Palmer plays bass on uh, several tracks on this album, but on certain others, uh, apparently Kate Bush tried using him, decided he didn't, she didn't like what he was doing decided to get a different bass player instead like basically she fired her boyfriend from the song <laughs> uh for the sake of making better music and luckily everyone here is is a professional and uh and uh, you know they're going to actually keep working together long after their relationship ends but the point here is that you know she's really interested in what every musician on this album is doing and she's she, brian wilsoning in other words yes exactly and so, you know, when it comes to specific tracks, I do think this album takes you on on a real journey uh, from the beginning, which is kind of, um, you know, the beginning is is still in the realm of, I guess, the oddball. Uh, Babushka is a, it, it has that great uh, transition into the chorus, uh, shouted out, I'm all yours, uh, that that uh, that's so effective. And there are a lot of interesting sounds going on in um in the texture in the background if you're listening with headphones into... but it is the pina colada song at, at the end of the day <laughs> it's the sad version of the pina colada song where the, the the lovers who are cheating on one another via the personal ads end up you know finding out they were cheating on one another with one another uh it's it's a concept that shouldn't work but it gets by on, on i guess you know just just Daring alone, in my opinion. She wanted to test her husband. She knew exactly what to do. A pseudonym to fool him. She couldn't have made a worst move. She sent him sensitive letters, and he received them with a strange delight. Just like his wife, but how she was before the tears. 
Transitions right into Delius, which I know Jeff is going to talk a lot about. But but th- this is a song that is it, it's impossible to understand what it's about unless you've you've read something about it. And the people just hearing this, just putting it on, putting on the album without reading, I assume it was explained in the liner notes. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> must have just thought it was so strange. Like what is happening? It's barely even a song. There's like this 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 grunting this this male vocals this cha 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 uh it's 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 so strange and, uh, and and it's also quite funny when you learn what it is about which is a a composer who is is plagued with syphilis who who needs uh, uh assistance to uh, to actually do his work and um based uh, again on something she had seen on tv and uh, if you listen closely to what she is singing in this uh, Latin-sounding style, uh, she's she's singing uh, uh, Deus, God. She's singing Genius, Genius, and she's also singing Syphilis, like in that he has syphilis, uh, which which I didn't know till till I read uh, the actual lyrics. Yeah, it's very funny, but. Um, let, let me put it over to Jeff because I know you have a lot to to say about that song in particular. Well, I mean, I love I love Delius because I love first of all, it's the sound of her becoming part of post punk, fully part of the post punk scene. You know, prior to this, you could have said she was some sort of weird kind of theatrical music, more meatloaf than rocker, uh, <laughs> in some ways at times. Uh, but but with this. Now she's recognizably a pioneer in a genre where you know people are going to be listening to her and forever influenced by her. From the moment that drum beat, you know, that electronic, you know, same thing you hear on like Duchess, you know, by Genesis or, you know, In the Air Tonight, you know, know, by Phil Collins. And and there you hear it going into Delius, uh, and which the song, as you said, this is a song that was written as if it was designed to have a commentary written on it by another writer later. That's the weird thing about a lot of Kate Bush songs from this era, where they just sort of don't, they expect you to just do the reading. She'll give an interview, she'll give one interview a year, I hope you catch it where she'll explain that it was written about this concept. And if you don't catch that interview, because this is before the era of the internet, then God help you, you're never going to understand. And yet the, the beauty of that song on a purely musical level is so good that it actually doesn't even matter whether you understand what it's about. That's the thing. All you need to hear is that little composition section where you first he's grunting like, ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta. You know, in B, friend B. Uh, and then the music almost pauses it to consider it. And a melody is written. It's like the sound of creation as it happens. It's such a weird and, and thoughtful way to try to represent that moment of trying to take someone's, you know, poorly expressed thoughts and then turn them into beauty and notes on the page. And at the end, what you're left with is a song that is genuinely beautiful. It is bucolic. It floats so gently and joyfully above everything else uh it is 
I think one of her first truly great triumphs. Uh, and yeah, and it's a song about a TV movie she saw about a syphilitic, uh, blind and deaf composer. Probably the album that grew on me most over the span of, uh, of prepping for the show. Uh, I, I at first sort of lumped it into that uh, initial duo of albums, and clearly upon uh, frequent listenings, it's different. And you know, Fairlight's a big, big part of that. The ability not just to compose on piano, but to also use uh, uh, the Fairlight it sort of freed her imagination even further, if, if you can imagine that. Definitely Babushka, uh, the, the opening track, sets a great tone for the album. That's a wonderful song. You guys talked about it quite a bit. My, my my favorite track on here is The Wedding List. And again, this is one where the narrative is so wonderful. Such a great story. I'm surprised you really? liked that. I thought oh, you'd I like hate it. that. No, I thought I like you that. would hate that with all the voices in various different tones. Listen, if you, if you don't like different voices in various tones, you're not going to find a ton to like through, throughout Kate Bush's cat. <laughs> so you, you have to sort of, you have to learn. You have to learn. You have to roll with that. That's yes. right. And, and, you know, the song itself, it does have a bit of, a bit of swing to it, right? And, and, and her vocals... Uh, the way they're almost like drunk and slurry in spots. She's really using that that tool uh, in service of the song, which is about the the, the power and the um, uh, the lust for revenge. Right, the groom is is murdered on the day of the wedding. The bride uh, vows to track down the suspect and kill him. She does. She commits suicide. Uh, because what else is there? Her, her passion is over. There's just, you know, she, she got her revenge. And then of course they find out later she was pregnant at the time she committed suicide. So there's a, it, the, the narrative is, is just outstanding. And, uh, I, I think it's a great, great song. Uh, you Those cheery vocals at the end. Yes. After she shot the guy, she yeah. committed suicide. Later, when they analyzed, they found a little one inside. It must have been Rudy's child. Never mind. She got the guy. Yeah. It's so it's so dark. I'm so sure I got him on the wet list. I got him on the wet list. I got him and I did not miss. I pinned him on the wet list. And then she shot the guy. She committed suicide. I'm coming to 
I have to say, this album is is grown on me so much. I'm God. I might even be talking myself out of my <laughs> rankings at the end because I think about it, and I used to say that I didn't like either of the two hit singles at the end of this album. Well, hit singles in Britain, not in America. You haven't heard of these songs in America. Uh, in retrospect, Army Dreamers is a song that is barely a song and i think I, I finally read a criticism of it or an assessment of it by robert chris galvall people that made sense of it to me which he said <clears throat> it gets by on its lyrics alone is it exists because of the delicacy of those lyrics those beautiful lyrics about young boys who are sent off to war you know they should have been you know rock and roll stars they could have been you know artists you know why couldn't they do this well no they should have been parents even beautifully observed delicate lyric and yet the music is just a wisp of a waltz in a way it works because it falls out of that little that, that instrumental prelude the night scented stock thing which leads right up into it but it's just not a like a, it, it doesn't grab you as a song but it works very weird again conceit about a, a child in the womb that's breathing in you know not only you know nicotine from his, its mother but also plutonium because the world has ended out of nuclear war and they've blown it all and this is from the, the child who's going to die in a dead future say please don't make the same mistakes that we did you know the theme has been overdone you know to death anyway and i do not think anything in the music helps to sell it Everything else on this record just grabs me and never lets me go. There's songs like Egypt, which is just a beautiful, exotic song that when you dive underneath the surface is actually about being seduced by the exoticism of a country when, you know, all around your ankle deep in shit and misery and human filth that people have to deal with and you're just a tourist. Great, great conceit. Violin, a song about violins, it sounds like a punk song. All We Ever Look For, just another song about male comfort, <clears throat> men who look for success and who look for, you know, valediction or validation from the public and fame and all of that. And really, all they really want is a friend or someone to love them. And then, of course, there's the infant kiss about falling in love with a baby. Yes. <laughs> who wants to talk about Kate Bush's song about uh, was it ghost possession and uh, pedophilia? Yes. This, this song happened. Andrew, you're a fan? Well, this is based on a classic Henry James story, The Turn of the Screw, except it's not based on that story. It's based on the film adaptation of that story in uh, called The Innocence, which was released in 1961, starring Deborah Kerr. And that is like a creepy little horror movie. The conceit of the movie is that uh, 
Deborah Kerr, uh, who is a governess for these two children, not actually a baby, but uh, <laughs> she believes that uh, the children are being possessed by ghosts of the dead, sexually licentious servants of the house. And, uh, but there is an ambiguity in the film about whether she is just imagining this whole thing to kind of cover up her own uh, disturbed uh, urges. And, uh, so, you know, I I think that might help you understand a little more what this song is about because uh, the lyrics are 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 quite disturbing when, when viewed in isolation. Again, uh, she and... asks you to understand this in advance. It's not like it's not like there's a little footnote on the song that says this was based on the on the novel The Turn of the Screw. Right. No, it's just like you know, good luck, buddy. But that somehow word seems to have gotten out, and we didn't arraign her as a pedophile in the early eighties. It's such a beautiful melody, too. That chorus is so nagging. It is such a nagging, nagging chorus. I think this is one of the best songs that she ever wrote. And basically, it's a Kate Bush acid test. It's like if you can understand, get behind the weirdness of this conceit, the weirdness of the woman singing this, the arrangement, and that, that sort of memorable piano melody, then you've got a chance with her because I think it actually only is going to get better and a lot weirder from here. <laughs> Scott, any thoughts? Um, uh, the only other, let's see, note, I, I do like Army Dreamers, which you mentioned earlier, and, and Violin, which had been alluded to or mentioned on a, a context of a previous album. I, I do, it's just bouncing off the wall craziness. Uh, again, it's about as close to a, a, a rock song as you will find in the catalog. Uh, but great delivery, great music. That that is also a highlight of Never Forever. Well, then I think Paganini should... up on the chimney. Yeah, yeah Paganini weird. exactly. <laughs> well, you know what, Scott? While I got you on the line here, my friend, why don't you now tell us about your favorite Kate Bush album of all? Yeah, uh, it's the dreaming. 
and it's not, and it won't make my final two. And I tried so hard, and uh, and you know, this is I know a favorite of Jeff's, and it's 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 admittedly odd, right? It's ad- admittedly, uh, I want to say uncommercial, but it you know, it's an artist's album. It's exactly what she wanted to do. I I wouldn't call it experimental necessarily, as much as it is just simply exactly what she wanted to make. She produced I, it. I, 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 you know, the way I put it, Scott, is this is an album where you listen to it and you think to yourself, how do they let her get away with this shit? Yeah. Frankly? They I, almost I, didn't I, release it. They I, they came close to rejecting it. I mean, I can't believe EMI actually let them do this. There's, you know, this is mostly now transitioning to Fairlight and, and the Lindrum machine for composition for her. Uh, guitars are are, are, are almost uh, almost gone you know, cymbal crashes, uh, things like that. There's a lot of piano. There's a lot of Fairlight. Uh, there's a lot of layered vocals, a lot of layered vocals here, sometimes double, triple, right? It's very deep in that sort of production. And I, I just don't... I'm blaming me, Jeff. I, I don't appreciate it. And uh, maybe it's just going to take a lot longer. Uh, I think you've got I, a lot of great points, actually. So we'll 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 see. Okay. I think I think I completely understand why you'll hate some. I think some of this is actually just a huge failure in some ways. But what's high is incredibly high as well. The one song that I like is Houdini, and again, that's mainly because of the story and the subject matter, and that's what inspires the cover too. Which I, it's a great cover of Kate Bush preparing to kiss ostensibly Harry Houdini. She's got the key in her mouth. That's how. Uh, he would have the key to, for his escape acts. I'm a Magic fan. I'm a Houdini fan. There's a great book by Joe Poznanski out, I guess, two years ago at this point on Houdini's life. I read that. And so a lot of little ins and outs uh, that, that Kate Bush uses in these lyrics of Houdini, uh, I knew I could pick up on. That was fun. Uh, this, this, you know, Houdini's wife. And um, you know, they had always said that they, would, they, uh, they could communicate after death through seances. She would do these seances after Houdini died in hopes he would show up and give her this this code that they worked out previously um prove prove you are with us using code only he and i knew yeah and she uh, she sings parts of it in this wrecked voice which she explained she drank a ton of milk and ate a bunch of chocolate which will sit right there in your vocal cords and allow See, some and very if, if odd this, things to take place if this had been neil young he just would have drank a bottle of tequila to get the exact same effect right instead you know? chocolate and Kate milk. Bush is so wholesome. It's just milk <laughs> and chocolate. The other yeah. one I'll mention just very quickly is Leave It Open. Uh, it's a very dark, brooding number. And this is where you know Hugh Padgham figures in here 
who produced Peter Gabriel stuff and helped Phil Collins with this gated drum sound. Uh, there's a lot of this big, huge gated drum sound on uh, the Dreaming on, on the next album too. Um, so Leave It Open, I think, is all right. The rest of it, man, I had a really, really tough time. And maybe Jeff can be the Kate Bush whisperer and by taking what I said previously can tell me exactly why I don't like what I don't like. No, I actually think there's a lot of good reasons that you don't like what you don't like. And it's not just because you know like, you have bad taste and that's why you don't like what you don't like. There are, this, this, this is a huge curveball. It's not even a smooth transition from Never Forever. There's a lot of things that are going on here that sort of need to be explained. The most important one of is now she's finally a completely free actor. She has no producers. She doesn't even have an engineer. She's got herself, her brother's. She's got Del Palmer, and that's about, you know, and any friends who happened to come over at the time. And in she fact, she had a meeting with Tony Visconti about that's potentially right. producing yeah. this and yeah. then uh, decided to go in a different direction. You know, Visconti would have been an interesting choice, but Visconti would have imposed his vision because this man has obviously been way around the block. And so that's not what Kate Bush wanted here. She wanted total freedom. And of course, total freedom isn't always a recipe for focus and i think that was a huge problem here she was she couldn't finish the album one of the things people don't realize now that we just think of things as albums is that uh you know sat in my lap the first song on this record came out a whole year it was written a year and a half before the rest of it came out a year before it she basically it was like the sloop john b move with with pet sounds where she's like crap i can't finish the album so they put out (laughs) sloop john b um and you know so we're gonna stall for time while brian finishes the rest of it well that was what they did was sat in my lap that's why i think it's very close if not the best song on the album is close to it it also doesn't really have a lot to do with the rest of the songs and the sounds on this album which are straight up tribal and almost aggressively atonal and i think sometimes they fail and when they fail they fail big they fail in a really grating way i think the title track is a failure i hate the dreaming I know what she's trying to do, the Australian Aboriginal thing. I mean, it's a mighty and noble attempt, but the music is barely there. It's almost atonal. It's just a sing-song, you know, simple melody. And the rhythms are all interesting. They do not hold together for a song. That does not work. And I also noticed that she does not, like, seem to really be interested in otherwise getting your attention with normal, like, you know, pop songs. So that, that, can you believe they, re- they released Suspended and Gaffa as a single? That's supposed to be a single? She made a video for it. It's a very <laughs> compelling video. There's no way in hell a song as insane as that is ever going to be a single. Because it's just, it's, it's, it's very aggressively crazy. But it's at the weirdness of these al- songs that I do find a lot of things to love. I love, um, you know, Pull Out the Pin, which she apparently wrote basically about the Viet Cong. You know, like, what does a Viet Cong person, you know, think fighting against the Americans? I mean, it's just like a very Kate Bush way of saying it. She's like, like I love life. Uh, instead of saying that they're terrorists who are like suicidal. They're, they're like, what are they screaming as they throw their grenades? I love life. To hear the way Kate Bush screams it, you know. You had to be there, man. It was one of those things where my jaw slightly dropped as I listened to it for the first time. Big Boy from Outcast is a huge Kate Bush fan, and uh, that's his favorite song. There you go. It is a beautiful song. Just one thing,
So I can completely understand why you don't like some of this stuff, Scott. I don't think it's all successful. Uh, Leave it open, actually. I don't like it all. I don't. I think it works in the slightest. I think it's it's a mess, and I don't like. There goes a tenor, which is like it's like her robbery, assault, and battery, which is the Genesis song about you know Phil Collins singing about breaking into a house. Well, there goes a tenor is like a bank heist song essentially, and again, you know, her in theatrical mode with the voices doesn't do it for me. But the, at the weird stuff here, the truly weird stuff here uh, is is about as, as weird as she ever got. And for that, I will always love it. Andrew? I'm going to advocate for the greatness of the dreaming because this is uh, definitely a contender for my favorite Kate Bush album ever. And that's for a few reasons. Uh, one is, um, you know, this is the album where she sings about letting the weirdness in and that's exactly what she does and you know lyrically her songs have always been pretty odd but this is where she first fully applies that to the music and really is trying to create a unique and uh uh, often a quite complex sound world for for each of these tracks and there is so much going on here i think this has probably the most re-listen value of any Kate Bush. If you have headphones on, uh, you just hear new things on this all the time. And, you know, some argue that it means it's overproduced, but, you know, I've found so much enjoyment over over hearing so much of the subtle touches that have been put on these, these uh, extremely dense sound creations. Uh, it's also a clinic in things the human voice can do. Yeah. She goes high, she goes low, she whispers, she screams, she does breathing noises, she does accents, she does animal noises, creepy distortions. Uh, <laughs> uh, in Get Out of My House, she, she features rhythmic Indian syllables. I was about to say, uh, the, 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 entire, <laughs> the entire final minute of Get Out of My House is just Kate Bush making animal noises. You know, the only other person who even compares is Morrissey on Meet His Murder doing the moves and the bleats at the end of that one. Except this one is good. This one is much, much better. So good. Uh, It's, you know, she goes for it. And, you know, often often these songs, the main um, sort of what's being counterposed is, is one Kate voice in counterpoint with the other, like doing a duet with herself in different voices. I think lyrically it's, it's her most confessional album about being an artist and what she's trying to do. I think almost half the songs are about her insecurities, her fears that she's not good enough. She thinks she knows what she wants, but she can't achieve it. Uh, Sat in your lap, suspended in gaffa, leave it open. All the love are all, are all about this to some extent. And then the rest are, are a history and world tour where she inhabits various characters uh, some some of my favorites, I love Sad in Your Lap. It's such a bizarre sounding song. There are these pounding drums, but there's also this percussive whooshing noise, uh, which is actually bamboo sticks being swung around by Patty Bush. Uh, and then there's this these vocal ooze. Sitting above it are these fair light trumpets. They sound mm-hmm. artificial, but, but very bright. And then there are these, uh, these manic, obsessively repeated motifs on the piano and bass. It's very strange, but it's a it's a propulsive feel 
she's switching it's, between it's, it's, three different voices on the vocals. I know, uh, and, it, and that chorus, that shrieking chorus, it's just on, on a on an aesthetic level, that is post-punk at its purest. That's right up there with Echo and the Bunnymen for me, or Susie and the Banshees. Susie and the Banshees in particular. Oh, wow, they were paying attention to that. And those tribal beats make it clear that she obviously was listening to so, the, so much Peter Gabriel 3 during the last two years. I think they actually, isn't Hugh Padgett producing this is like one of the three tracks that he was able to produce? So that's why it sounds exactly like Intruder. And that lyric, where what's the line where she's like, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a scholar, but I really can't be bothered. Best just line. give yeah. it quick. Gimme, 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 gimme. It's oh, so good. It's, it's, the the fairlight just... trumpets pop overhead. It's uh, the grief she switches for to a different voice. There's a chorus of Kate Bush's singing that. <laughs> gimme it quick. <laughs> Scott, you could get behind that one. That's another one I did have a note on. That I, yeah, Set in Your Lap is, is, is one that I did find some, some value in. Yeah, but yeah, so you were saying, Andrew. And I think the, the lyrics, anyone with, with pretensions of intellectualism has to appreciate. It's about the quest for understanding the world and the meaning of life and, and the frustration of the failure of not getting the answer and repeatedly being informed how little you still know. Uh, so I love Set in Your Lap. Uh, I love Leave It Open. Uh, the first minute is a duet between herself singing a deep, distorted, raspy voice and a distorted chipmunk voice. Then you get a call and response that's repeated obsessively, like an incantation. By the uh, way, I'm just in- listening. To you, I'm listening to you write that description, and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, boy, why didn't Scott like?" this the deep raspy like voice. It i know that's the funny part that's the part it's like this is the one he singled out as liking it's like yes definitely this is very arty stuff sorry Andrew, you were saying. but but she does this in the middle of the song it's like this incantation she sounds like she's a witch doing a spell and then is my favorite part where the song transforms uh the drums go and then the the sparse instrumental texture suddenly fills out. The guitars come in. She's going nuts with distortion. She's doing, I think, four different voices at this point. She's singing We Let the Weirdness In. <laughs> and, you know, she sings We Let the Weirdness In. She sings the syllables backward and plays the recording of that backwards. So it's in the proper direction to understand it, but it sounds strange. And fans of David Lynch know that that's the technique that he's going to use for Twin Peaks when he does his his backwards sounding dialogue uh, a few years later. 
another favorite moment is at the end when like this ruckus of a musical texture suddenly drops away except for this this brief descending riff from an acoustic guitar and then you keep hearing that we let the weirdness in chant uh it also contains maybe her creepiest lyric outside the infant kiss i kept it in a cage watched it weeping but i made it stay I think she's talking about her her own weird and creative side, which she yes. feels she's been constraining up until this point. It's like the, I know why the caged bird sings, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. of this album uh i won't go into detail on the rest of them i love suspended in gaffa uh, i do agree with jeff that the dreaming is a bit of a dud i think because it is a little too static in that background yeah. it never really changes with that uh didgeridoo and, and the other uh australian instruments it, it's definitely the one i skipped the most but i think one that that nobody's mentioned that i actually really love is night of the swallow uh which is you know, it's about a smuggler who wants to take a risky job involving an airplane flight, and his wife is trying to convince him not to go. And Kate is singing from the point of view of the wife to slow, subdued slow music, and then from the smuggler as he's describing what he wants to do on this flight. And the Irish instruments pop in, and suddenly we're in triple time with a joyous dance melody as uh, the smuggler is talking. I think the, the genius of this song is that, you know, I'll call this the flight section for the smuggler with the Irish instruments. The first time it's really short. It's just about 30 seconds and it's fun. Then we go back to the smuggler's wife and the slower music for a while. But then the second flight section starts up and this one just, it keeps going much longer than you'd expect. It goes into a frenzy. Uh, it defies the expectations that have been set up for a song. Uh, we get new elements added, this punchy, let me, let me go. Whoa, that just gets brought back again and again whenever you expect it to be winding down uh, i think this is this is an ecstatic sequence to this to this ecstatic song and it, and it works so well because of the contrast with the music that's come just before and the expectation she's set up that she's now defying but i'll i'll stop myself from from going out even further about the dreaming uh, just let it be said i really love this album
I mean, this is also a moment where she's beginning to explore her Irish roots. Kate Bush, actually, her mom's side of the family is Irish uh, from, like, I think it's, like, southeastern Ireland. Uh, and, and so she was going back there, I think, to escape from, you know, the hectic music business. And she was, like, living on the coast, you know, like in the Irish wilderness. And obviously it was very, you know, very moody and very, you know, she was exposing herself, obviously, to a lot of native music. So that's why you get these the Ulen pipes start you know coming into her sound they're not going to disappear after this album you're going to be hearing this sort of stuff for quite some time now um and you get that i think there's a band uh, an irish traditional band called planksty that's playing or planchy i guess you know i think that planchy i think is probably how you pronounce it me who doesn't know gaelic sees the word p-l-a-n-x-t-y and <laughs> says planksty right but anyways, uh, you know, they're a trad Irish band and they're the people who are playing those breaks that Andrew was talking about. And, you know, you think that might just be a one time thing. And all of a sudden, somewhere around the middle of the ninth wave, that entire approach comes back. And then you're like, whoa, hey, no, this was this is this is going to be a part of Kate's music going forward. I would, by the way, Andrew, say that the scariest line uh, on this album is actually just the line. Get out of my house. Sung by Kate Bush at the end of this album. And this is one that I listened to and I thought there's just no way in hell I'll ever be able to sell Scott on this. Because what is there to say? This is an album. This is this is a musical recreation essentially of The Shining, you know, you know, the the album Get Out, you know, that kind of evil the Amityville horror, something like that. But of course, it's also a metaphor for like a an a mind or a heart rather a human heart that's so closed up and, and afraid to ever open itself to vulnerability or to love that anybody who tries to reach out to it gets the same kind of result and this thing ends up turning into this bizarre imaginative flight where you have kate bush screaming you know get out of my house in a way i can't even hope to try to approximate because it would shatter my vocal cords and the microphones. But when you hear it, it's blood-curdling. It's gripping. It's not melodic. It's as far from pop as you're ever going to hear somebody travel in an album that actually made it to top three in the UK charts. This house is a desire. This house knows all I have done. They come with a weather hanging around them. This house is full of madness. This house is full of but i love it i understand why some of you will hate it but this stuff to me is just harrowing. It is this music that actually feels like you're on a roller coaster ride. That's how she intended it to be, and that's how it works. I don't know if you know, Scott. Is this 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 kind of thing just revolt you? Revolt isn't the right word. I I, I certainly know that that it's appreciated by listeners who are 
who are not me necessarily. It's just not my thing. But the How good about, news, okay. the good news is, even if you know listeners are are experiencing this stuff for the first time and, and getting through the dreaming and thinking that's not for me either. I'm on Team Scott. Well, the good news is, I think all of us, the three of us, and tens of thousands of listeners out there, uh, might be able to agree. Uh, that this next album, Hounds of Love, is one that will appeal to each and every one of us. Yes, you know, hey, yeah, suddenly Kate Bush puts out her greatest album, and one of the like, 10 greatest albums of all time. 10, 20, I don't know. That's where I would put it. I think it's that good. And here's the trick. What did she do? She took her time. She stepped back and she gathered her strength. After after um, The Dreaming came out, uh, she said, you know, even one album every two years that's a little bit much for somebody like me. So having fully built a studio you know, in her backyard that she, you know, that means that she never has to leave her, her home if she doesn't want to. Um, she sets to piecing together a record that couldn't be more different from everything that we just heard on the dreaming. Uh, I, I'm in danger of monopolizing the conversation about this because this is a record that meant so much to me from the second I first heard it. I will just open it by saying that I think it's a perfect fusion of the melody and grace that you first hear on Never Forever and the avant-garde rhythms and the weirdness of the dreaming. And then on top of it, you get this added conceptual and pop ambition. She solves every single one of her creative problems on this record every single one of them previously the issue had been that like the weird theatrical or arty pieces would sit uncomfortably besides the more commercial or straightforward stuff but here the gordon knot just gets cut side one is a staggering avant-garde pop fest side two is just a conceptual suite where all the weird stuff actually works placed next to one another because you feel like it was meant to symphony. this is the hounds of love this is the way first the first way most people hear Kate Bush this is still the best way to hear Kate Bush it doesn't help me probably just heard it for the first time this week why don't you give us your first impression sure thing um yeah i liked uh, hounds of love from first listen it's the first uh, album you know I, I went through them chronologically it's the, it's the first one i seriously could say well that's that's great uh, the, the greatness is very apparent from start to finish it, you know two two sides two suites the uh, the first half is uh is is you know more more pop, i guess you'd call it pop based right and the second half is this wonderful uh just you know sort of chained uh uh series of of songs uh, a lot of them a little more daring i guess uh, a little more um interesting production wise and how they come together but that that first half of the album 
you know, she's not concerned with performing live, clearly. She takes her time, as Jeff mentioned. Uh, she's got this 48-track studio at her house. She's not under any sort of pressure to do anything except what she deems appropriate. And I think, look, I, I, I think there's a bit of a desire to become slightly more relevant again, not just on behalf of the uh, label, but on behalf of the artist. Uh, you, you want people to enjoy your work. You want people to appreciate your work. And she did it this in such a way that she did it without compromising, right? This is not a, a, a sellout uh, for the charts, but it is an attempt to, again, grab the ears of, of listeners, I think, and, and really successful. Uh, people probably know running up she that. Didn't, she didn't sell out one bit for any of the four singles. All of them are still weird, bizarre intellectual conceits. One of them is based on the life of an obscure like Freudian psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah. Like she's she's the same kid as she always was, and yet it's just a quantum leap forward. The title track here, "Hounds of Love," it will be in my uh, five songs at the end of, of the show. I, I think it's one of her great accomplishments again in blending uh, these various influences and desires that she has. Uh, you know, thematically, lyrically, being afraid to fall in love and running away from these hounds and trying to escape and. Like throwing, uh, throwing things into the water to get rid of the scent so they can't track her. The, you know, musically, great tension. Uh, these huge gated drums that that build and build, and you know, your pulse is racing as the chase continues through this through the song. And then by the end, there's this relief of giving in, where she says, uh, "You know, I, I need your love, 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 love." Um, that is that is just really a great track. The Big Sky, which I think is the very next track, is probably my second favorite song here. I, I love the conceit here of, of, of looking at the sky, watching clouds, those simple pleasures, those simple things you enjoy a, as children, and the, um, the uh, ephemeralness of both youth and these things you're watching. There's that uh, she says, you know, that, that and, and again, the way she delivers it is so childlike. That, that cloud looks like Ireland, uh, but then she's blow it, blow it a quick, uh, blow it a kiss quick because it's changing the way that things come and go and enter and exit uh, our life. Yeah, but but also there's the subtext to that song is is, is more subtle. I think I, I, what I love about it is it, what is it she said? She's like, you never really understood me. You never even tried. She's staring at the clouds. And what she's basically is, is she's the dreamer who does not want to be bothered. Don't pull me back down to earth. And if you can't understand why I keep looking here, why my head's in the clouds, well, then, you know, maybe you don't understand who I really am. It's kind of almost like, in a weird way, it's it's who she is, hmm. you know, as a as a persona. That's who, that's who Kate Bush is, the dreamer who always has another conceit or another idea that she's coming up hmm. with. Why do you write around? Why do you write about babushka? Why are you writing about these random things? Why are you writing about, you know, the, the Overlook Hotel? Well, because that's what I feel like writing about. That's where my mind wanders. That's what Big Sky was always about to me.
the second side here, the ninth wave, is this wonderful suite of songs. A, a sailor who's been shipwrecked and abandoned and is sort of drifting in and out of consciousness throughout most of this second uh, side of the album. You know, there's there's even less structure in places than usual. This was this was sort of a preview of things that will come down the road too. But you have this cycle here of of near death, of rebirth, and these songs all work so wonderfully. There's a you know a phrase I'll probably use a time or two again. It's been used a time or two before, and that is you know th- this should not work, and yet it does, and yet I enjoy it. And that's what I would say about waking the witch, right? I should I should probably hate waking the witch, but I I don't. I'm... I was about to say if you hated the dreaming, I thought this is another one yeah. I flagged. I was like Scott, I hate this one. I'm 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 trans. By waking the witch and uh, and and the way she uses all of the uh, you know visualization, the chopped up vocals, the processed uh, voices. Uh, you have to have a certain appetite for a Satan voice. As yes, a narrator, I suppose. Yes, um, and, and... guilty, guilty. <laughs> get on through uh like watching you without me and you have these uh unintelligible lines in which the you know the backing course is actually saying you can't hear me in a way in which you can't decipher they're saying you you can't hear me uh really really smart really sharp um and she you know after years of sort of playing with instruments now she's even playing with voices in the way they work with the fair light and the way that she's able to sort of warp them uh in tone in texture it's really really genius um and 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 the last song on the album the morning fog is just such a sweet sweet song a wonderful melody layers of vocals she's singing in a you know a, a more normal register uh, you know that, that 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 voice that we heard in the first two albums is largely gone in many places here this morning fog is this opportunity for her to tell everyone how much she loves them in her life it's just a, a really sweet song both sides of hounds of love work so and well. I know, and I know you're not the world's biggest Radiohead fan, Scott. But for those of you who are, and you guys, if you listen to this show, you know I am. The morning fog. It's separator.
Radiohead Separator, the song they used to conclude King of Limbs, it is absolutely 100% inspired by the morning fog. And there's no way you'll ever be able to convince me otherwise. If you recall from our Radiohead episode, I was the big King of Limbs defender. So that makes some sense. So it makes some sense. I want to say just one thing before I give this to Andrew. I want to say it about one song, and it's a song that Scott already singled out, but I just have to agree with him so strongly, and that is Hounds of Love. Is this Kate Bush's best song ever? God, I think it might be. It is this dizzyingly delirious evocation of this pure rapture. That, That tribal beat just smashes along, you know dancing drunkenly almost stumbling around the room as these striking strings just start percussing in and out and then she sings that it's my single favorite kate bush lyric of her entire career where she says here i go and then what does she do here I go. You know, she's running from love, but no, 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 no. Maybe she's turning around and she's saying, you know, come and get me. I take my shoes off. I throw them in the lake and I'll be two steps on the water. That line, I'll be two steps on the water, the sheer transport of ecstasy to be so possessed with the fire of love that you're walking on the water like Jesus for a couple of feet before you realize what you're doing. It's a lyric that Bob Dylan would be proud of. It is... It is Kate Bush at her most glorious. You know, it was again Chris Gow who said, like, what margin is there in 1986 for a pure romantic? Kate Bush as a pure romantic is what everyone will ever treasure, forever know and love and remember about Kate Bush. And it's because of this album and songs like this. everything on this record but i am i am not a greedy man andrew we invited you here for a reason go so the first side uh it has four wonderful perfect pop songs the four singles running up that hill i just think the perfect song uh the opening uh just just gives me chills every time that would work uh, as an that would work as an instrumental with no lyrics whatsoever it is it, it, it the, the backing track is so it's both exciting and hypnotic at the same time I, the backing track works in and of itself and one really interesting change in her songwriting process around this time is that you know her previous compositional process was her working out the lyrics and the main melody, singing it at the piano. This song, and most on this album, I think, was uh, was written w- from the rhythm up. She and Del Palmer were working up that background drum beat. Boom, 
and uh and that was core to her conception of the song i think before there were even lyrics or a main melody to it and you can really hear it because because it's so good and um you know that synth part uh the, the sing song synth going womp 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 uh, I think that is a cello sample on the Fairlight that has been distorted to sound nothing like a cello at all. But uh, uh, again, instantly recognizable. Uh, my favorite moment on that song is um, it's like uh, everybody come else, on, baby, come on, darling, let's exchange the experience where where the guitars suddenly come in. Uh, it's, it's just so good. baby come on darling and then also again if you're a student of production you'll notice every time it kind of runs through the cycle of the chorus you know we're running up that road where if i if i only could make a deal with god the background instruments change just a tick each time one extra layer gets added one extra layer gets added um it's minimalism as pop some of the songs on the second half of this album go back to sort of a lushness, sort of like, you know, I'm going crazy in the studio thing. But Running Up That Hill has that weird song. Yes, you said, because of the way it came together as a demo, it seems like it almost, it's like everything has been stripped away. It's like watching a skeleton running, you know, like you see just the bones of everything instead of like the flesh. And that's that's kind of a, a good way of getting at the weird sort of deconstructed sound of some of the songs on this album. Like, Nominally, Cloud Bursting is such a lush song because it has these strings that drive it. And it, it doesn't feel like a lush song at all. It feels almost very skeletal and very stark. Cloud Busting, I mean, as you alluded, it's, you know, it, it has this very strange background when you know what it's about. A real life story about uh, a young boy who, whose father claimed to have a machine that could make it rain. And uh, then he got taken away by the government and, and arrested. Uh, but at its core, it's really a song about optimism in tough times. And it's just tremendously moving when she sings in the chorus, I just know that something good is going to happen. Uh, and then again, using a similar uh, method, as you explained for running up that hill, each time the chorus comes back for cloud busting, she alters it in some way. Uh, the second time, there's just saying it can even make it happen, and there's this warmth synth melody that comes in. The third time, it's a warm synth melody plus these kind of martial sounding drums. There's these cheers at the end, uh, yeah, 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 yo. It's it's uh, it's it, it just comes together beautifully as a song, both both you know, uh, orally and emotionally. 
Uh, the, the, the lyric to Cloud Busting is almost upsettingly perfect as an act of pure emotional empathy. Kate Bush, of course, being a single woman, you know, uh, trying to understand what a young boy feels about their father. That's a, that's an act of real transport, real imagination. For her to get right things that I kind of wonder, like, how could she know? Because I know what it's like. <clears throat> every kid knows what it's like. So it, it, not every kid. But if you're lucky, you do know what it's like to look at your dad and to love him, to idolize him. Those days you spent with him, like, tinkering around in the basement building models or, you know, doing science kits. It's not like we were building cloud busters or anything like that. But it's the same idea that she zeroes in on. A small child doesn't know that his dad is committed to some insane idea. I'm like, wow, I can see the clouds and all that. The guy was actually like, out of his mind in real life, right? But the kid doesn't know that. The kid only knows my dad, and I love my dad, and I love spending days working with my dad. And then suddenly that moment when the men in white, the men in gray come and take him away, and I'm like, my dad's not perfect, and I can't save my dad. My dad can't save himself. That weird feeling of vulnerability, that is like, such a delicate, delicate moment, not only to ever try to depict but even to be aware of know that that's a subject that you could zero in on and to write about so for her to actually figure that out and then to somehow pull it off in a song this delicate as i said um the lyrical vision that kate bush offers on on albums and songs like these is boundless at times covered Hounds of Love in the Big Sky. I will say I don't love Mother Stands for Comfort. Uh, there's a little too much uh, glass breaking and crashing sounds in there for me. <laughs> I always uh, feel like if you want a song that was influenced by Pink Floyd, I feel like that one might have been influenced a little bit by Mother by Pink Floyd, which in, I hate. By, I hate Pink Floyd's Mother, by the way. But that kind of like Mother Stands for Comfort and then there's a little dark side in the background, right? That's the way I always took that. But but as far as the ninth wave, a lot of people would say that this is the best thing she ever did. Uh, I don't. I, I like it a lot. I don't think I would agree with that. I think I think her peaks elsewhere are far higher, and we'll we'll get to Ariel a little later on where she does a similar um, lengthy suite, uh, which which I actually prefer to the ninth wave. Um, but the one track in here that I really really do love and think that that stands as the best. Uh, among the best she's ever done is Jig of Life, which I think is is awesome in the in the awe-inspiring and terrible sense of of awesome. 
uh, it's, it starts ominous and dissonant. Uh, you have these lyrics. Now is the place where the crossroads meet. Will you look into the future? Uh, very, very heady, very, very creepy. Uh, she, she repeats the same note again and again. Na, 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 na. And then she jumps up an octave. Never, never say goodbye. And uh, come on, let me live. Uh, then we go into the fun jig in the middle you know, again, with the Irish instruments all over this song, uh, so important to this song. Uh, and then we go back to the ominous section for the final part of Jig of Life. But here is where her oldest brother, uh, John Carter Bush, Jay Bush, reads a poem that he has written. And uh, this is this is a rare time that we get to hear the oldest brother on a Kate Bush album when and by the way, needless other to brothers say- all over them. Needless to say, folks, at this point in the song, we have journeyed way far past that point where things should actually be working. I guarantee you, at this point, it is riveting. <laughs> I don't know how it is some how a poetry reading in the middle of an Irish jig song in the middle of a conceptual sweet works, but this is the same moment I think I fixated on too. It's so good. The both the poem and his delivery of it are are gripping. Uh, my favorite line is tripping on the water like a laughing girl. Uh, it just uh, it it's at such, you know, in the, the storyline, so to speak, of the ninth wave. This is what's happening in this song is that her older self is from the future is speaking to her as she's drowning and kind of convincing her to, to fight and to live and to stay alive. Uh, so you get this, you know, this sense of 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 time transportation almost and then this this utterly joyful jig in uh in the middle and then you have this this sense of like like mystical powers like truly truly strange things happening that um that uh that i think is so effective here i put this moment here i put this moment over over you see where memories are kept bright Tripping on the water like a laughing girl Time in her eyes is spawning past life Run on the ocean and the woman unfurls Holding all the love that waits for you here Catch us now for I am your future A kiss on the wind and we'll make the land Come over here to where when lingers Waiting in this empty world Waiting for them when the life spray cools for now does ride in on the curl of the way And you will dance me in the sunlit pools We're of the going water and the gone We are of water and the holy land of water And all that's to come runs in with the thrust of the strand I think the entire thing is, is, is actually just a magical little suite I think one of the things that's, un, that's unappreciated about it is that it opens with one of the most perfect and beautiful lullabies, simplest lullabies that Kate Bush ever wrote. I think this is actually right up there on the level of like, well, people make fun of me for this, but I've always liked Billy Joel's Goodnight My Angel as a lullaby song. Well, Goodnight My Angel, as pretty as it is, is pedestrian compared to End Dream of Sheep. Ironically enough, it sounds like it should be the conclusion of an album. Instead, it's the beginning of a very lengthy suite. That's why it's very clever, kind of as a dramatic inversion.
but that's such a beautiful song uh, that is mere setup and then all of a sudden we're under ice and we're on this long trip and yeah everything works on that suite there Danny Thompson is the you know again when he when she didn't feel like having Dell Palmer play bass she got Danny Thompson he was a great avant-garde bassist of that whole scene that I'm a big fan of played a lot with Richard Thompson as well um, but he plays some bass notes on Washing You Without Me that should be illegal in most countries <laughs> because they're so outrageously full. It feels like fretless electric bass, like it's a, it's like, you know, Levin style, but it's not fretless bass. That's an actual acoustic double bass that's just been messed with in so many different ways. The last thing I want to say about the whole Hounds of Love era is that the B-sides from this era are just as great as as the original stuff. Be Kind to My Mistakes, a great title. Uh, actually, it didn't come out until the um, the Sensual World era, but it's from this era. I love the title alone, um, but there's uh, there are two songs here. I know that Andrew's a fan of Under the Ivy, but I just have to signal out Burning Bridge, which was her idea of just, you know, it was the throw-off. She had to do a B-side, so what you do? It's a Prince tribute huge wild dance pop with all these great cascading like vocal lines and the prince pastiche is so obvious in the vocally she throws in it's one of those things whoever listens to kate bush besides burning bridge is fantastic so please this whole part of her career i think is just solid gold shadow under the ivy it's just a, a little over two minutes long it's an achingly sad beautiful piano song she sings go under the garden go under the ivy uh, in the chorus three times and uh each time differently in the third she cuts loose uh the lyrics on their surface are not sad but something about her delivery of it uh is just is just so moving and and sad I, I i think it works quite well go right to the rose go right to the white rose go into the garden go under the ivy go under the leaves go right to the rose go right to the white Oh. 
So, Scott, unless you have anything else uh, to say, do you want me to explain what happens next? Sure, feel free. Uh, she falls off oh, the Jeff, face of the Jeff, did you want to mention Experiment 4 before... Uh, well, well, before well, we well here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say what happens <laughs> next after Hounds of Love is that she falls off the face of the earth, uh, which isn't, isn't entirely true. 1985, Hounds of Love comes out. Her next album isn't until 1989. But, of course, she kept on finding these, these ways to stay in the spotlight. No, she's not a hermit. She's not completely gone off the radar. But it's just like usually on other people's stuff. So in 1986, what does she do? Well, she, co- she co-guest stars on Don't Give Up, a song I've talked about many times on the show before with Peter Gabriel off of So. It's a hit single from there. It's a beautiful song. It's kind of like almost Oscar-worthy stunt casting is the role she was born to play. She's the supportive, consoling wife who's telling the man that it'll be all right even though he's unemployed. He's not worthless, that you know he has friends and that he has people who love him, and it's okay. It's a great song, but it's a song for you know a, a, another episode. It's, it's a part of someone else's story. Then she puts out another number one hit album. What is that? Oh, it's her compilation. It's her greatest hits, right? She has a greatest hits album. It's called The Whole Story. It goes to number one in England. And it's really good. It's really solid. I'm surprised you could actually make a coherent greatest hits album out of Kate Bush's career. <laughs> I mean, because think about all these artistic gyrations she's gone through. I mean, this basically just draws from the singles. But it gets it mostly right, and it's interestingly sequenced. And it does include Experiment 4, which is a new little non-album single. And, of course, this is, again, Kate Bush at her imaginatively wackiness. I love this. This is a song that is basically just Colossus the Forbin Project in musical form. It's another one of these songs, uh, or Savior Machine by David Bowie. This time, what are the government trying to do? Those dastardly government researchers, they never know when to quit. This time, they're trying to research a killer sound. Um, and they somehow, unfortunately, succeed. And the sound is now going to come and kill us all. This is basically, she's, she, she, she said that she only ever read The Shining by Stephen King, but I'm pretty sure she read The Stand as well, <laughs> because that's what this song is basically about. But again, it's Kate Bush at peak mode, so I really enjoy it. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on it. It's a fun song, and the video is great and like it's creepy hilarious. and scary and features Hugh Laurie from House playing a doctor yeah, and Gary Oldman as well. It's, it's a who's Really who. young British great actors just showing up. Music You know, after the cloud busting video with Donald Sutherland starred in, I'll mention this. The cloud busting video is so fun because Donald Sutherland, uh, I think she, Kate Bush basically just got him to volunteer to do it for free. But there's this great shot in it where she's, by the way, uh, she shouldn't work this video. She's, you know, Kate Bush, who's this very voluptuous woman playing a small boy, you know, basically the plot of the song. And he's playing the dad. And she even has like the boy wig. It's almost like, oh gosh, it's like embarrassing like Hollywood, like, you know, roles from the uh, from Tropic Thunder. Um, it's that bad, but it works because 
first of all, she sells it with her artistic commitment, but also the height difference is real. <laughs> There's a scene where she's like standing next to Sutherland, and it, you're thinking like this has to be a trick shot, but no, <laughs> Dan Don Sutherland really is like six foot seven, and she's like five foot two. So like he towers over her the way an actual adult would tower over a small boy, and that just somehow makes it work in a way that it shouldn't. Anyways, she doesn't ever really disappear from the public eye, but she takes her sweet time. What she eventually comes up with in 1989, long time later, is The Sensual World. Uh, this is, uh, well, uh, things get complicated now, but it was going to be on my top two at the end of the show. That's how highly I think of it. But I'm tired of hearing my own voice. So, Andrew or Scott, which of you wants to go first? So, I, I think... Oh, Go for it, Scott. This is a really strong album, and it nearly made my top two at the end. It's probably going to fall just a little bit short. I feel a, a handful of songs here on The Sensual World are a bit, and this is a very strange critique of Kate Bush, I realize, a, a bit too monochromatic, which is a, <laughs> a very out of character for her. Um, but it's a great follow-up to uh, the past album. Uh, you know, themes here lyrically are, are very much Kate Bush themes, love, lust, uh, the passing of time, certainly relationships and, and femininity. And this song, this album features what I'm almost certain is the first time I heard Kate Bush because listening back, I realized I knew this woman's work from having seen She's Having a Baby. She's Having a Baby. From yeah. like when I was nine years old, way, way, way before any of the themes of the film actually would would, you know, hit home with me. But, and by the way, everyone thinks about Kate Bush as being this impossibly remote, icy, unreachable artist, artiste. She actually just wrote it because John Hughes asked her to, and she liked yeah. John Hughes movies. <laughs> just like everybody else likes The Breakfast Club, Kate Bush liked it too. And, it and I think it's funny. It's right in the climactic uh, you know, part of the movie where everything works very well. So that, uh, that's, that's featured here late uh, in the album. There are a handful of really nice things here, and I guess I'll, I'll lean back onto the, the storytelling. Uh, he heads were dancing is uh, is is so fun. Um, it, it, despite the fact it's about accidentally dancing with Hitler, uh, the the universal experience. Yes, <laughs> and, and being swept off your feet by uh, who, who among us, right? By the Fuhrer. Yes. Uh, you know, essentially, she's charmed on the dance floor by Hitler and finds out later it is Hitler. And I think there's some question like, like, what kind of a person are you that you can't figure out that that's Hitler, right? That you couldn't see through his facade. Uh, you know, song-wise, musically, there's these burbling synths, um, and it Scott, has... Scott, listen, Scott, all yeah. I'm going to say is that at the time, that kind of mustache was very much in vogue. <laughs> all right? You can't just assume people would have thought it must be Hitler. The, uh, the basis was that a friend of hers had a uh, dinner party, uh, attended a dinner party with, uh, with a charming person, and later realized that person was J. Robert Oppenheimer mm. and was like kind of shocked to realize that this person who was so charming could, you know, be the inventor of the atom bomb. And so Kate Bush uh, translated that into something <laughs> perhaps a little less subtle. It's <laughs> to say predictable Kate Bush style. Not, 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 the, not sort of the ambiguity, the moral ambiguity of like Oppenheimer. No, 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 Hitler. <laughs>
But it is such a great song, Scott, you were saying. Well, the line, you know, they say the devil is a charming man, and just like you, I bet he can dance. It reminded me of that great line from Albert Brooks in Broadcast News. What do you think the devil's going to look like when he comes? He's going to be charming. He's going to have horns. He's going to be charming. Uh, Just like Hitler on the dance floor. Uh, So heads were dancing. I like reaching out. It's one of the more muscular tracks in, in her collection. It's, it's an uplifting. Some of these songs, I mentioned it was kind of monochromatic. They are a little sort of low. Well, reaching out is one reach, that... Reaching out, reaching out is as simple a chorus as I feel like she'd ever written up into that point, but it's actually really just satisfying. It yeah. is satisfying, yes. but you're right. I noticed it myself. I went back and I took it. Like, you know, like, it's the first time I feel like Kate Bush isn't doing maybe something a little more unnecessarily complex than she has to. Uh, love I and, like that, though. Yeah, Love and Anger is a great song. This is the one where I have the note where the music sort of overtakes the lyrics. I think Kate herself says it's not, I mean, it's about something, but it's not really about something the way most of her songs are about something. There's a line late, uh, don't you ever think, don't you ever think you can't change the past and the future. But but musically here, man, this is really neat, soaring and skittering. David Gilmore plays some riffs here. Uh, this is a guest guitarist that would work as opposed to a guest guitarist which would not work on the album to come. Um, but there's these squalling <laughs> guitars late. Uh, I think it's one of the few Kate Bush songs where m- the music really outshines uh, the lyrics and the narrative. The music is so good on Love and Anger. deeper understanding i'm sure someone will, will talk more about that because it's so uh so accurately predicts the future of computers and social media and networking and being you know being lonely and then thinking you'll find uh, happiness uh connecting with someone online and in fact you're just more lonely than you were when you started out um yeah, I, I think there are some really high points on the sensual world i i, I nearly made my top two it's going to fall just short there are a handful of songs that really would stand with any of her best work. Andrew? I very much agree. This is a very good album. I think I really like every song on this album. Uh, also will will fall short of my top, but uh, but but I like it a lot. The sound on the tracks that, that she is exploring now, um, it's usually built of some combination of the following. You have electric guitar features, which is something she really hasn't done much of in a while. She's right. really gotten away from featuring the guitar. But, you know, David Gilmore is here. Uh, you have some cool stuff from um, her her main guitarist at the time, Alan Murphy, on The Fog. Uh, you also have strings. You also have Irish instruments again. And then you have the trio of female Bulgarian folk singers, the Which trio is of, Bulgarka. Of, of course. You know, when you think Kate Bush, you think of Bulgarian folk singers, do you not? She went to Bulgaria to uh, to woo them and convince 
convince them that uh, that this would be a good thing for them to do, and it worked. Um, she's actually commented that it was very unusual for her to be working with with other female musicians. I think this is the only instance that I'm aware of, and she said it brought a different energy to the studio where she was usually the only female presence but you know they're spotlighted on three tracks here but usually you have some combination of um of those things electric guitar strings irish instruments or the trio uh the opening track the sensual world the great opening moments to the album these bells uh sliding into the the whip-like percussion again like sat in your lap and uh and and then her saying "Mm, yes and of course the story behind this song is that she had wanted to simply adapt lyrics from the final chapter of James Joyce's Ulysses, the monologue by Molly Bloom. It's a stream of consciousness monologue that's extremely famous, uh, well-regarded literary passage. And she could not get the rights from the Joyce estate. Uh, so it's pretty funny when you look at the lyrics uh, side by side to what she originally had and will eventually record later on uh, an album called Director's Cut, which we'll get to. Uh, it's sort of like uh, when, when a student is worried that, that they're plagiarizing, so they change a couple words. Yes! Like, like yes! Changes, uh... it's, so, it's so funny. That's so funny, Andrew. It is. It's totally the Avoid Plagiarism remix. She changes Andalusian girls to Machiavellian girls. Yes! Uh, you, you know, that, that sort of thing. Looking for the exact same amount of syllables, like some other word, and, and keeping a lot of the other words. But This, this isn't an era, incidentally, for literary nerds when the Joyce estate was notoriously tight-fisted about letting anybody use their words because they they remember they had huge troubles getting Ulysses even published in the first place so they like you know they they bore a grudge towards any any what they perceived as these midwit pretentious artists who might try to appropriate his stuff which is why Kate Bush you know was was tripped up by the legal team and yeah it's just so funny great track overall i also want to call out the fog uh i really enjoy that too that that is you know apart from maybe rocket's tail it's it's the most odd sounding song on the album i think uh it has this this it's a fog-like texture of guitars and strings and synths and then at a certain point in the song the fog lifts and and it's beautiful
heads will dance. I also love uh, that, that uh, burbling uh, bass line in the background and this pounding percussion, the use of static, uh, these high strings going on. And, and, uh, and, and it's just a really fun song overall. Uh, and then this woman's work, which uh, I do think stands, you know, it's, it's one of her most famous and, and beloved songs for a reason. Um, so, so, you know, she took this assignment, which was to write this song for this kind of schlocky movie sequence where Kevin Bacon is, is worried about his wife's pregnancy. But she really taps into the universal here. Like lyrically, this, this song is about powerlessness. It's about anyone who's ever seen someone they love suffering and been powerless to help, which is, you know, something that every, everyone goes through at some time. And about anyone who's had to put on a brave face in difficult times. I should be crying, but I just can't let it show. Anyone with deep regrets about missed opportunities, all the things I should have said, but I never said. And then, like, at the ending, this plea, again, stemming from powerlessness. Oh, darling, make it go away. Just make it go away now. Um, musically, there's, you know, slow section, fast section contrast. Again, uh, the melody of the, um, you know, I know you have a little life in you yet leads so beautifully into the similar sounding but meaningfully different, you know, delivery of I should be crying, but I just can't let it show. And then in that last section when she's singing, she's also howling in the background, just like this cry of frustration and fear and pain, you know, uh, chills, really. It's, 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 it's such an incredible work. I someone with so many pretensions it's amazing how easily she found she could set them aside when she needed to when when the prompt required it i suppose because remember this is a song that was made to order it was you know we think of it as like a classic of kate bush's career but yeah it was john hughes was like hey could you write a song i really like your music how's the love was great could you write a song for my new movie and she was like okie dokie and that's why you got this woman's work. It was it was actually like you know made to request. Doesn't sound like that. Doesn't have any of the weirder textures. It is so nakedly open and you know unafraid, as, as you just pointed out, Andrew. Uh, and so that's what impresses me so much about it. I think the, the album in general, this album, glows. You guys really covered most of it. I don't have to add too much. I, the title track. Uh, you know, it's just this marvel of, of it's a melodic marriage. It's a marriage to the concept. You know, it slithers. That melody slithers sensually. Does all the squiggly Irish pipes in there. You know, Molly Bloom, as good as Joyce himself, could have dreamed of having her come to life. And that that chorus just throws in the little extra grace note on the title when she sings the sensual world. 
to sort of just emphasize again sound painting to emphasize how alive and moving she is as a character off the page now living in the real world as i said you know i think her not getting the rights to it was the best thing that could have happened to it just like do we really want David Bowie to write a 1984 musical? Aren't we glad that the Orwell estate denied him the rights <laughs> so that we got Diamond Dogs instead? And I think the one other song, uh, first of all, you know, there's, we don't actually you know, do enough throwing of shade. There's a genuinely awful song on this album. Rocket's Tale is one of the worst things in Kate Bush's discography. It, the, the, the initial acapella part is really kind of nice, avant-garde, art-rocky Kate. It's obviously very you know, esoteric. But when that music comes in, man, that is just generic sludge. It's one of the most boring and almost sort of so shocking to me. When Kate Bush has been bad, she's been bad in creative ways, but she rarely bores me. That's boring music. That's my, well, I'm very rare that I actually have like affirmative negative criticisms, but I had to offer that one. The last thing I want to point out, though, on this album, and one of the songs that I love, that it was in fact a single, so I know other people like it too, is "Deeper Understanding," because it's it, it it's not just you know Scott signaled it out as being a uh, a song about technology and about like you know how you know how it predicts the way that we've all fallen into our computers and our clicks, you know, our click holes. But you know what she was really writing about was herself with the Fairlight synthesizer. I mean, she even uses terminology on that song that Derek is unique to the Fairlight when she says hit execute. That's the button you push on a Fairlight. She's talking about becoming a hermit in her own 48-track studio and never having to leave and just you know how tempting it is to, to turn into Howard Hughes to seal yourself off from the outside world. And that's why that song is so powerful because like a lot of her best songs, she's writing about a conceit, but the conceit very, very clearly tracks with something that she's feeling in her real life. As a whole, you know, other than I said, Rocket's Tale is terrible, but everything else on this album is really, really great. And this is also sort of the end of an era for Kate Bush. Everything after this almost feels like kind of a weird fits and starts. There was like an attempt to continue when she might have been better off taking a break, and then just sort of now being oh, emerged from darkness. Here's a little coda, here's a little second coda. Who knows what might come from the future. Because after this, her album contract ends. There's a big box set that gets issued. All of her B-sides are in there. It's nice. And then she continues on with her next record because it's like, you know, the one last one to do. And this is called The Red Shoes. And I think by everyone's consent, if there's a Kate Bush album that probably should never have been made, (laughs) this is the one. 
And the irony, of course, is, and I don't even have a lot to say about red shoes. This is, this is, you know, a lot of the art conceits that kind of gone, gone to seed and overcurdled. I think have gotten too esoteric, too devoted to one thing that's too difficult to relate to. But I just think it's very ironic that the one song I actually like on this album, I'm suspecting from comments I've heard on the show up until this point, is the one that you guys don't. Red shoes as a mixed bag. I, I, I act. I do prefer to Lionheart. There's more that I like on here than Lionheart. I think it is appropriately ranked toward the bottom of her discography. But, but I do think there is a fair amount of good stuff here. Uh, she clearly was not in a good place when she was writing about this album. Uh, she had uh, several people close to her die, and her mother was uh, was about to die. Uh, her 15-year relationship with Del Palmer was ending, and um, uh, the guitar player on this album, Danny McIntosh, uh, would um, would eventually uh, be her eventual new boyfriend and then husband. Um, but she, there are a lot of, you know, this is kind of a breakup album, uh, and there are moments about songs about sadness and death. But I think where it falls short is the sonic ambition. Uh, and there are there's talk of why this was the case that she was actually hoping to craft kind of more traditional songs that could be performed easily right. on tour because mm-hmm. she was thinking about touring again. And so she sort of ditched a lot of the studio experimentation and returned to a more straight ahead rock sound, but not completely because you still have, you know, uh, a zither from Madagascar being played on Eat the Music and uh, and on Red Shoes, uh, but the lyrical content too is is a lot more about you know love and heartbreak and and more. There's there's less of her traditional weirdness. Here. I always wonder how she fits the curve. Like, did she just write a bunch of songs that were kind of based in this vein, and then later decide, hey, I can kind of bend them into a conceit that's about this movie I saw that could be like a nice way of framing these songs? Or did she actually say like, I love this movie. I got to write a lot of songs about this movie. I never quite know with her, but there's something about the conceit here. Like the way, like, like seven of like the majority of the songs here are supposed to be part of this theme. And I, you know, I'm usually you know, as esoteric as Kate Bush's themes can often be. I'm usually okay with grasping them. I just never get it here. It never grabs me at all. Yeah, I, the, the songs I like are, I would say, not like terribly deep or complex, but they could be fun. Rubber Band Girl is just yeah. a fun pop song. Uh, yeah. I love that Here I Go section at the end where she makes the rubber band noise. Oh, oh.
I like, um, I actually really like Lily. Uh, I think that is a fun song. It's, it's, it's kind of, there's some weird guitar stuff going on in the background and, and it's also just kind of a banger. She just belts out that protect yourself with fire section. Uh, I think top of the city is, is almost a really good song, yes. but, but it's, sort yes, of it's missing very something. It's very close. It, it goes it goes back and forth between this soft section and this loud section, but then it just kind of keeps doing that. And what she did so effectively in her earlier 80s work was, well, she would introduce a new element later on to take it to the next level, and she just kind of doesn't hear. Constellation of the Heart uh, is ridiculous, overtly silly, but I like it. Uh, the that fun chorus where she's 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 singing back and forth to to this this chorus of several voices about uh, you know that's it. What do you mean that's it? Uh, that's all you get. Um, uh, a particularly funny thing about that song is she has a line about how she's not going to point her telescope at the big sky anymore. She's going to point it <laughs> inward toward the heart, uh, which, which considering the content of her next album, Ariel is, is entirely, entirely about the sky is very funny in, in retrospect. Uh, it, well, that's first of all, you know, the danger of taking 15 years off between albums. But, yeah. But she also, had enough time to change her mind. Yeah. Yeah. She really set herself up for some eating of words there. Right. Uh, and then I think the song that Jeff was alluding to, Why Should I Love You, the Prince collaboration. And um, again, fun, would have put it among her greatest work. The story of why it exists in that form is very funny. Uh, yes. she, she wrote the song, basically, and recorded it and sent it to Prince, thinking he would just add some background vocals. What Prince decided to do was instead... Uh, add guitar and bass and completely change the feel of major sections of the song and he didn't sing the part he was supposed to sing <laughs> and he just sent it back to her they knew they were never in the same room for this and andrew and so, the more andrew the moral of this story is that's why you never send prince your multi-tracks because <laughs> if you let him overdub the individual tracks he may just decide to redo your entire song put it out of your mind Yeah. 
And a lot of people hate the new version, but when I listen to the original version, I don't think the original version is so great. I think no. Prince added this 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 sort of wacky, fun, ridiculous element that you know. <laughs> maybe it's not among her greatest work but but it stands out it's not it's not you know uh bad in a boring way oh it's a beautiful song i think i think kate bush fans sometimes can get a little uptight let's be honest <clears throat> people treat kate bush the way they treat you know like i think of like uh, nick drake or even the way a lot of people thought about Radiohead back in the day, where it's like, they're, oh, especially if you're an American, because nobody knows about America, you know, here in America. The Smiths, another great example. It's our private secret. Oh, what are they doing funking up my Kate Bush? But you know what? Uh, if they, if this was indeed a rescue job by Kate and her team, just like sort of defunkify and make it more of like a Kate Bush song. I think all in all, it worked. It worked well enough that it's my favorite song on an album that otherwise is the only one, really, of her actual albums that has, to me, almost no focus. I prefer Lionheart over this by far um, because the rest of this stuff, it's just, it, 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 to me, it's the mistake that, the, the fatal mistake, which is that if you base your entire conceit upon a bad conceit, <laughs> then you know you, you don't have firm grounding and then and then the sands are just going to shift underneath you and then almost you know it doesn't hold together for me but i don't know you know scott i know this is you know <clears throat> I, this this is the dreaming of the ones that you kept talking <laughs> up to me no i don't like the red shoes either so i will uh, uh, join join the club you guys mentioned a lot of reasons why one that i will just allude to here is that Kate Bush made it through the entire decade of the 80s without, uh, yeah, outside of maybe the gated drum sound, right? But her, her, her albums of the 80s don't sound necessarily like they're of the 80s. Yet somehow this album from 1993 now begins to sound like yeah. it was produced in the 80s. It's, it's very strange. Um, Rubber Band Girl is a fun song. It's, it's maybe her most kind of generic sounding uh, uh, pop song, though. Um, it sounds good, but then you get, and so is love, which is where Eric Clapton guests on guitar. And that's just not a good song. Uh, I, I don't love the Prince collaboration either. Uh, Andrew sort of identified top of the city. I think top of the city is yes, very close to being a very good song and it just doesn't quite get there. Um, like moments of pleasure doesn't quite do it for me. There's just, there's a lot of things going on here that don't work out in quite the right way. And I, I certainly don't want to say she was distracted, but as Andrew said, there's a lot going on here with her mom, uh, you know, passing away during the, during the recording. A lot of people close to her who were in bad shape or also passing away. And so I don't know if you would need to explain something away, but there's not a lot from here that I think stands up. Apparently she agrees because many of these songs were re-recorded for a album called Director's Cut, uh, what about two decades later where she sort of reimagined seven, seven of the tracks from the Red Shoes were redone on the on the director's cut. And yeah, we might uh, as well just deal with this now. What do you guys think of those re-recordings? I have to say this, that's, Kate has released a couple of curious albums in her career, but that's always struck me as her most curious of all because I don't, find those re-recordings to be particularly yeah, I, revolutionary in any way. I agree. I, I you know, because essentially they're working with the same backing tracks with new vocals and places and, and new drums, and that's about 
it. it. Yeah. There's there's a lot of the songs are sort of stripped down, stripped yeah. out, uh, slowed down in places. Uh, Deeper Understanding becomes like this six and a half minute long, really spacious, empty sort of track. Um, what uh, and she changes the lyric on, and so is love. The the lyric on Red Shoes is uh, now we see that life is sad, and so is love. And she changes the lyric here on director's cut to say, and now we see that love is or life is sweet, and so is love, which does change. She's in a better place. Yes, it does change the meaning of that track a little bit. I don't think it <laughs> rescues it, but not uh, for the better. No. Yeah, I, I don't think there's an, there's enough. I don't say enough changes, but I, I don't think that she's sort of rehabilitated any of the songs in a in a significant way on on director's cut. Yeah, this is kind of a fast forward though into the future. Actually, I have a quick question for Andrew. So I want you to answer answer this as quickly as possible. Andrew, quick, what did Kate Bush do for the next decade? <laughs> Kate Bush vanished. That was that was the end of Kate Bush's career, and and we never uh, we never saw her again after 1993. And it's been a shame, but uh, but no, she um, she got married to Danny McIntosh, and um, and she actually never stopped working she recorded in uh the mid 90s she recorded uh what would be the lead single from ariel king of the mountain she recorded a cover of marvin Gaye's sexual healing uh but she by the way by the way that cover was pretty good it's weird yeah i like it i like it uh and she kept working she she did more songs that would end up in ariel uh around 1998 and then she gave birth to her son uh, married to Danny McIntosh at this point. Her son is Albert Bertie McIntosh. And um, then she gets derailed by having a young child. And um, Bertie will uh, will kind of recur and uh, and appear in all of the rest of her work. It's important from this to, point. It's important, by the way, to note why she got derailed. It's because she decided she was never going to hire a nanny or get any sort of professional help that in, you know, and it makes, it makes all the sense in the world. If you think of her, her songwriting topics over the past decade and a half and writing about men, young boys, you know, you know, you know what the way, what they need and what they look for and aspire to in life. Well, she's like, Oh, I finally have a son. I'm not going to screw this one up. Um, so she just devotes herself to being like, I'm going to be his mother. It's just, he's not a sole caretaker, she's husband and wife, but she doesn't want anyone else interfering. And like, you know, if it had been anybody else, the idea of setting aside your professional career just because you had a kid is like, well, I mean, this is the, you know, the common thing we talk about all the time these days. Kate Bush, it was never a question. She's a rock star, pop star. She sells records. She, there's like people who like get hired and fired based on the decisions she makes. She was going to raise her son and that's what she did. And so, guess it was it took until 2005 in other words for her to feel ready i respect that a lot i gotta admit and the time away and the time uh, away from producing albums i think served her well um ariel which is this next album 12 she years she missed all the bad trends she really did. and you know and emerged at a place where um like just for example as we get into ariel king of the mountain is is just recorded pristinely that song sounds so good uh which is the the single and also the first track on ariel so 12 years in between albums 
and uh, Ariel comes out in 2005, and it is a double CD. Yeah, the first half, which is A Sea of Honey, uh, again, with sort of the more uh, structured uh, classic songs, and then A Sky of Honey, another soul, uh, whole suite full of songs, replicating uh, the the pattern replicating the uh, the uh, the diagram used on Hounds of Love, and I don't think it's as good as Hounds of Love. That's uh, a very high bar to reach, but Ariel is really quite good. Thematically, these songs are perhaps the most directly relatable, understandable of her career. It is it is a domestic experience, right? songs about uh well there's a song where she literally sings pie the numbers in pie as a song there's about, a song where she literally just sings washing machine in yes. the most sexual way imaginable slushy sloshy slushy sloshy right um uh, there's a song about her son there's a, just songs about her home life these mundane things and then inside on the second suite the sky of honey it turns to more sort of cosmic uh, as as Andrew said earlier, you know, looking toward the sky quite literally in places. But these songs are the first. I mean, Birdie is this wonderful little uh, track about her son, Birdie, uh, piano, Renaissance guitar. She stayed home to, to raise him. A couple of times, it's not the first time she's used the sun, sun play on words. You know, the, the sun rises, the sun, and, and talking about her own son. But the, the very end of the song is something that I don't know if it's only something a parent can relate to. I don't know if I would have before I became a dad, but she repeats this. You you bring me so much joy, and then you bring me more joy. One of the pieces of advice that I give to new parents, you know, having been a parent now for almost nine years, is um, is it gets it gets better every day. And what I mean by that is kind of twofold. One is that, you know, children become more independent little by little, and so what they rely on you for you, you have a chance to, to read or do something for yourself eventually. It gets better. The, the kids figure things out. But also it gets better in that they are always growing. They're always finding new things, accomplishing new things. They're developing personalities. They're becoming little human beings. And so I, by, by that I mean every day gets better too. Every day becomes more joyful. And that really connected with me on this lyric. You bring me so much joy. I mean, yes, of course. You're my You're my son. You're my daughter. You're just you're this incredible human being that I've helped to create. And then you bring me more joy. There's this sort of daily discovery of wonderful new things that your kid can do. And that's how I read into those final lyrics on, on Birdie. It really struck me.
Jeff mentioned the, the sensualness of Mrs. Bartolozzi, this song about doing the laundry and my blouse wraps itself around your trousers, my skirt floats up around my waist uh, as, she, as she is literally doing the wash, clean and clean kitchen floor until it sparkles and put the, 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 the laundry in the, in the washing machine. The mundane becomes magical in a song like that. And uh, and the second half is is just outstanding. I think Andrew said he likes this suite better than the one on Hounds of Love, and it's pretty darn close. Um, there is a wonderful uh, stretch of songs here. I, I want to talk about the very end, and people can perhaps fill in. Well, Sunset. I think Sunset might be the the, the best part of the mm. second uh, part of the album. This is a um, horrible feeling where I can just know already you're going to steal what I'm going to well, say. Let's talking see. about the end. All right, do it, well, do it, keep, do it. Okay, so here's what I like about the end. And this is, you know, Kate Bush invites you to do this, though, to sort of read into what she does because everything is intentional and everything is done for a specific way. So Somewhere in Between uh, is a wonderful song. And it ends with, um, you know, she says, Good night, son. And then this, this voice, I assume is Bertie, I believe it is, says, Good night, mom. And then we run into these last two tracks, Nocturne and Ariel, and things shift. And again, being a parent, after you put the kids to bed, things can begin to cut loose in a way, right? You, you, the kids are asleep. You can finally do something you want to do. The kids are asleep. You can watch something on TV that has dirty words or, you, you know, right? And so after the goodnight son, goodnight mom on somewhere in between, we have these two tracks that get a little more, I don't know, adult? A little more funky. There's this wonderful pulse throughout Nocturne, this funky electric, these layers of keys. Uh, it's like after the kids go to bed, good night, son, good night, mom, the parents can play. Nocturne, and yet Ariel, where it's just this wonderful explosion of like life as daybreak begins to to approach, and I want to be on the roof in the sun. Uh, Ariel's just this really wonderfully bright song, and it ends with these sounds of daybreak, right? Birds chirping, and, and the day beginning after this night has come to an end. It's all pieced together so brilliantly. There's no there's no rush. Everything is arranged so gracefully. The attention to detail is obscene on this uh, on this a sky of honey. Um, I don't know if I like it better than the Hounds of Love uh, suite, but man, is is it, is it outstanding? I think the first half is not as strong as the first half of Hounds of Love. It's not equal in terms of an album as a whole. But you know, it was twelve years, and she took that time and really produced something that is so carefully planned and so. I think meaningful to her too. Uh, Ariel's a really great late career album. Okay, you stole most, but thankfully not all of what <laughs> I was going to say. Andrew, 
if you pill for that last bit, I will fire you on the spot. But what were you going to say? Uh, I, I may. I may. I have a suspicion. <laughs> go, but, uh, go for it. Go for it. So, you know, this is – I view it as a warm hug of an album. Uh, th- there was an element of agitation in all of Kate Bush's previous works, often to great effect. But that is absent here. This album is at ease. This album is at comforting. It's projecting total mastery. It's mature. It has nothing to prove. Utter confidence. Uh, it feels like she found inner peace. Uh, th- the sound overall is, is so lush. Uh, I agree that the first half is not as good as Hounds of Love, but I like it a lot. Uh, I want I want to actually single out Pie, which uh, is... Uh, some people don't like it and, and they think it's gimmicky, but, you know... I would, you know, the phrase uh, I'd listen to. I'd listen to Kate Bush sing the phone book. I'd listen to her sing the digits of pi, and that's what she does here. Uh, what I do think is really interesting about it, the synth rhythm in the background is so tricky. It keeps pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, there's this one, two, three, one, two, three, but then it keeps placing the change in note and the emphasis in different places, keeping you off balance, sort of mirroring. Uh, the number pi and how it has so many digits and and goes on um it it feels like you're kind of traveling in a circle and in fact the lyrics allude to that her vocals float above the accompaniment when she when she starts singing the numbers uh just just singing that three and um you know (laughs) the, the line a deep infatuation with the calculation of pi uh, just really fun. The reason that I do really, truly love this album and, and that I would put it among her best work is the Sky of Honey Suite on the second yeah. side. So it's 42 minutes long, uh, longer than, than the ninth wave. Um, I do think it kind of has to be consumed altogether. Mm. The effect is so much more powerful from uh, you know going through the anticipation of what's come before and understanding the references to the musical ideas that have come often several tracks before. It uses length to great effect. It uses the slow build to great effect because it starts off slow. Um, the prologue, there, first there's, there's a brief prelude where you hear Birdie and... Um, uh, just a very short intro but then there is a track called prologue that there is this one note pulsating pattern 
that just keeps going for the entire track. And that serves as essentially the canvas upon which Kate and all the instrumentalists here paint. Her piano comes in and it goes up and down with lovely runs. You have uh, a bass player named Eberhard Weber. Uh, he, he has this sing-song bass that's doing the same. Uh, occasional touches of orchestra, other sound effects being brought in. And her vocals are beautifully and, and understated here. Her, the, the melodic line and her delivery are so languid and unhurried. At this point in the track, this is, this is enjoying the day. This is taking your time. Uh, the pulsating background, the one note motif, gives this sense of suspension, building anticipation. And finally, about four and a half minutes in, the drums come in. Uh, no drums up to that point, and uh, it pays off that anticipation, even if it is kind of just a transition to the next section. dream is kind of similar i won't go into it too much but there is this element of suspension again where there's kind of an eight note background rhythm that just keeps repeating for the entire song uh here we get an intro to dan mcintosh's guitar um and then another brief transition and then you get to sunset so after 15 minutes of basically unhurried vibing we get the most striking melody in the suite one that's going to recur a few times once sunset begins uh, uh, when she sings in the sea of honey. And uh, it's a beautiful melody. Suddenly, suddenly there, there is action and it's not, it's not, you know, completely intense just yet. It will, it will continue to build for the first four minutes. It's, it's basically just piano and acoustic bass. You have these, these evocative lyrics about climbing into bed and, and, and it turns to dust and then about four minutes in, you get that moment where, where the Spanish guitars come in. And after what's now been 20 minutes of contemplative, unhurried music, suddenly things pick up and you get the fast pace. It's like waiting for the sunset and seeing the colors start to appear, like that excitement. It just really comes alive. gone and we get into the nighttime section and 
really at the end from Nocturne to Ariel, especially, uh, it's such a great build. Nocturne is slow. There are these, these beautiful percussion sweeps in the background, slowly building to at the end of the track, which will be the sunrise. It came up on the horizon, rising and rising. And then finally there is the closing track Ariel, which, which is just totally cutting loose, total fun. There is, um, a minute and a half long sequence where Kate Bush is melodically laughing in response to birdsong. Yeah. And, it's beautiful. Uh, and that, again, if it was anyone but Kate Bush, even with a lower voice than she used to have, it's, it's, it's just so musical. It's so musical. It's such a beautiful sound. And then you get that. I want to be up on the roof chorus that she keeps repeating again and again. And, and <laughs> there's such that build uh, some some excellent guitar from Danny McIntosh at the end really spotlighted there and um, and then that's it it's 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 just a wonderful climactic payoff to the to the um, the forty minutes of, of of previous build that that we've gotten to this point and and then that's why this this suite really blows me away it's one that I always you know I turn it on when I'm in like a, a contemplative mood when uh you know, thinking about, you know, things like nature and the passing of time and, and you know, the kind of beautiful things that, that can happen all around us. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's a masterpiece. difference between the carter you know family you know the carter cash family getting together and making music and the way the bush family has now become you know music makers if you think about it this is one of the most family oriented albums uh you know in in the pop firmament as as andrew just pointed out it's kate bush kate's husband kate's son <laughs> uh you know his brother's who are all like throwing in there, you know, and, and this has actually been her music making ethos for so long. And it really all comes to a head on Ariel. I, I, I will not waste my time repeating what he said, but I'm glad that he left me just a little space in between the cracks for somewhere in between, which is my favorite song on the second half of this album, the suite. By the way, from now on, from this point forward, I think we all agree this is the way Kate Bush albums should be presented. <laughs> You have, whether it's one half or, or one disc, of here's some songs. And then you're like, here's a big, ambitious, conceptual suite. 
And, you know, at this point, now that she's finally repeating themes in the midst of this big movement, there's nothing whatsoever to distinguish this between, say, Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull or Supper's Ready by Genesis or any of the high prog stuff that we've talked about on other episodes. It's just that this is from a much more feminine and different point of view. But in a way, it really is a culmination of her musical style. But that thing about somewhere in between that gets me is because that to me is, is her doing talk, talk. That's I believe in you. Um, when I think of that, you know, the way that it floats so lightly in the breeze with that organ ending on that song, um, that sort of gentle melodic groove. you said andrew about how that you know it's not that there's no edge on this album it's just that this this there's sort of the uh the discomfiture is gone on this one it's an album that is very comfortable in its skin and that skin is that of of an adult and a mother and and you know a wife and somebody who's almost just sort of amazed that boy all that works too if I can find a way to make that work with my life, just the way I made everything else work with it. And that's why Ariel is kind of one of these latter-day miracles. It kind of leads us to the, I guess we could say the end, <clears throat> tail end at this point of her career. It's not like she's a hermit. Apparently she gets prickly when people describe her as such. She doesn't want people running around on her property taking photographs, but she's just a normal mom. Uh but now she doesn't have to put out anything. So whenever she releases something, it's for some weird reason. It isn't necessarily going to be cued to like pop charts. So what do we have? We had director's cut, which was this thing we already discussed, which was the, um, you know, the re remix of songs from the sensual world and from the red shoes, which I guess I just find to be, as I mentioned already, curiously unnecessary. The changes aren't that great. And even when the changes are great, I don't necessarily think they're for the better, but what, do we think about her sudden reemergence into public to suddenly perform all this music? She was really proud of Ariel as well. So she decided in 2014, hey, screw it. I guess I'll just take up a residency in London. Uh, and she was not stupid. She realized that people have been waiting to see her for decades. So everybody came, everything was sold out. And uh, see, you have this great stage and screen and uh, you know live release as well performance. What do you guys think of this? I, I I have to admit, like you know, the the there are two of them now. These two live stage shows. I understand the way. I respect actually the way that conceptually this stuff only deals with you know with the hounds of love and aerial material with a few other things. Nothing from the early era. But like I don't know, I don't. It, this to me is is mostly footnote material. 
Well, we did jump ahead from 50 Words for Snow. Okay, so I thought 50 Words was a year after. I thought oh, no, it was... it was the same year as Director's uh, Cut. Okay, there you go. Okay, that's what I get. Okay, well, 50 Words for Snow is, is almost – that was what I was going to end on, which I almost feel is even more excrutable. And it's, it's <laughs> kind of like Kate Bush and her are like, here, I just decided I would release an interesting art project phase. Yeah, so – so and Let's it links book, to Director's you know? Cut because yeah. – uh, Part of the thinking behind director's cut, uh, she gave several rationales for it. She didn't like that Red Shoes was recorded in digital. She didn't like she didn't have the right the rights to uh, the Ulysses passage. She didn't like think some of the uh, production choices had aged well. Uh, but core to the project of director's cut was she brought in a drummer named Steve Gad. And Steve Gad, I wouldn't claim to be like a drum expert, but from what i've read he's he's apparently some sort of a legend among session drummers he played the solo at the end of asia by steely dan uh he's um and you know what he brings to director's cut and to 50 words for snow is kind of core to both of those projects and she really viewed him as you know her main collaborator on these projects because he he drums like a painter he is has this really he never does the predictable thing he's infinitely subtle he's he's always doing something that is that is interesting to listen to in the background if you're tuned into it but it rarely takes over and you know that is kind of the style that she was looking for for 50 words for snow and you know this is an album seven tracks but several very long tracks uh, the longest she ever released i think um around the theme of snow and uh and they're not bombastic epics they're for the most part very subdued i find them tracks to get immersed in uh to get lost in Uh, i actually didn't really like this album for many years but only recently did 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 it finally click for me and it clicked when i was listening to the first track snowflake uh you know the concept is that here here we have Bertie singing. He's he's around 12 or 13 years old singing in a high choir boy voice and uh, from the perspective of a falling snowflake. And, you know, that's an idea that could be done in a very cheesy way. But the music here is very evocative. It, it, it's, it just kind of summons up the feeling of being in, in kind of a peaceful snowfall, but it's also very lonely. There's this repeating piano rhythm, subtle electronic pulsing in the background, uh, Steve Gadd's very minimal, uh, intentionally plays drums. Uh, and, you know, Bertie is singing, I am ice and dust, my fleeting song, like allusions to, to death or ending. But then Kate responds, the only line she sings on the song repeatedly, the world is so loud, keep falling, I'll find you, to her son. I can hear people. it's really good i also really like misty um 
that's the longest track. It is a track about hooking up with a snowman. Uh, I know, his... <laughs> I know. You like first, so first it's I'm... Hitler, now it's a snowman. <laughs> I'm so here. I'm so content to accept Kate Bush conceits and that. Yeah, I saw mommy kissing Frosty the snowman. Oh my god. <laughs> But it, it combines the ludicrous, like the snowman's ice cream lips, with the like somewhat disturbing. Like she talks about her bleeding hand, the snowman's mouth full of dead leaves, and then she goes out on the ledge again at the end. You know, there are a lot of songs where she's talking about going out on the ledge or on the roof, and you have to wonder what that that might signify. But I really like her voice on this track. There's some grit to it. There's this repeating piano rhythm uh, to a lot of tracks on this album. Really, uh, she's she's all about repetition getting into a groove just kind of playing in a in a musical world for a while uh gad's drums again are very light and so agile uh i think this is my favorite track on the album but i i do like the album overall i think probably more than jeff uh i don't know what scott thinks but but um, i did come to like it and and really enjoy it even though you know i wouldn't put it among her greatest work it's kind of hard to even categorize it in that fashion because well, the right. genre is so different he won't speak to me his crooked Right. I mean, I think of it as late period Scott Walker, where he's doing like Tilt or, you know, you know, albums like that in the sense that these aren't traditional songs. They aren't meant to be seen as traditional songs. They're sort of avant-garde experiments in weird classical suites. Now, because she is softer touch than Walker does, I think this is probably a little more consumable. Oh, God help Scott. If we ever book a Scott Walker show, he's going to just go crazy for the latter part of that career. Um, but yes, I do like it. It's just that I don't know quite how to characterize it as an album per se. This isn't even like Laughing Stock by Talk Talk or um, you know the Mark Hollis Soul album. There are still songs there. There are songs here, but there's just no the structures are not quite the same. So, anyways, this to me is just like you know, like oh, you know what, you know, here, here's a really fascinating experiment: snow theme songs. You know, I mean, decades she was probably working on this. You know, like I'll bet you, like, like one of, like for that Frost in the Snowman song, probably originally dates from 1977. For all we know, <laughs> and it, it just it just took 40 years to really come to fruition. We can never know with her, and I, you know, and 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 you know, who knows? Now, Scott, you have any final thoughts about this, or or, or have we reached that part of the show where we just say that it has been seven years, except for this year's Christmas holiday greetings? that we've heard from Kate Bush. I will say that if I had only heard 50 words for snow, I'd really not like it. Having yeah. gone through the entire catalog, Jeff mentioned, I think described it as this earlier, having been through the entire catalog, I just say, oh, well, that's 
that didn't work. That's, you know, that's an experiment that, that didn't go the way that I perhaps would want it to. There's seven songs here, right? And, uh, and they're all lengthy. Again, of the seven, one about sleeping with a snowman, one a tribute to the abominable snowman, the Yeti. Uh, one is uh, a guy saying snow 50 different ways, which is, again, the, the, the title of the album. And then there's a duet with Elton John, because why not? <laughs> Right? Why not? And that's probably my favorite thing on the album is the is Snowden at the Snowden and Wheeler Street, Street right, John uh, duet. So, and, and Jeff made a good point. Like, how do you? I don't even know how to talk about this, right? How to evaluate? They're, they're not, they're not a typical song structure. They just unfold, and that's what it is. There's not, you know, there's not a lot of repeating motifs. There's not a lot, of, right? It's just this is what she created. Um, this is her art, and <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure it works for me, for maybe a lot of listeners out there who don't. Scott and Scott try to be diplomatic. Scott embodies the befuddlement of modern man when presenting avant-garde art. You know, we start with we start with saying Kate Bush is strange, right on on the first two, uh, the first album for sure. The second album there's very high voice and operatic, and she's fifteen, seven, and we end with saying. Kate Bush is really strange, sleeping with snowmen and seeing them melt, and there's a puddle, and where did he go? And I'm going to jump off the ledge and find him in the snow. So it's a good book ends, I think, for the show, actually. But listen listen to all of our listeners. I said, has there ever been a part of your heart that was also strange, that's had a love for the strange, that has felt drawn to the strange, maybe because you were strange yourself? And then when you found somebody else who seemed really strange, whether it was Peter Gabriel or it was somebody with a safety pin through their nose, you, you found that oddball and you thought, okay, uh, you know, that, they're on my team. Well, John Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols listened to early Kate Bush when he was still in the Sex Pistols and everybody else was making fun of her. And he was like, I get why they hate her, but I like her. <laughs> Because he got up her nose in exactly that right kind of weirdo way. That's the appeal of Kate Bush. She is a unique original. She is a weirdo. She's one for the for, she's one for the ones who just went out there to live out loud artistically and somehow refused to ever get caught up or compromised <laughs> by anything else. And of course, this is a story that I was born to love. That's why she's one of the artists that I've been happiest that we've been able to cover on this show in years. And that's where we end things for this episode on Kate Bush. Our guest, Andrew Prokop uh, with Vox, a senior politics correspondent. We're at the part where we give you the two albums you should own, the five songs you need to hear from our artist, Kate Bush. Our guest goes first. Andrew, the floor is yours for your two albums and your five songs. So first for me is The Dreaming. It's uh, the most re-listenable, fascinating, interesting, strange, unique uh, creation I think she ever put together. Uh, such a variety of songs. I don't think any two songs on the album really sound much alike. There's a, a unique sound for all of them and um, it takes you to some sweeping emotional places, uh, some some silly places, some, some scary places. Uh, and the other for me is Ariel. Uh, it's a tough choice between Ariel and Hounds of Love. I do agree that uh, the first half of Hounds of Love is better than, than the first half of Ariel. But, um, but the second half of Ariel is just so good. Uh, it, it really, I, I think it deserves to be considered among her, her greatest works. And uh, yeah, the Sky of Honey 
suite is is just amazing. Uh, as for my five tracks, I will pick "Sad in Your Lap" from the Dreaming. Uh, also, "Night in the, Night of the Swallow" from the Dreaming. Uh, both of those, I think, sort of epitomize the uh, the weirdness and the uh, kind of uh, grandeur that she can reach at her best. Uh, from Hounds of Love, I'm going to pick Cloud Busting. That is a song where, you know, I think I, I might actually prefer Running Up That Hill, um, say that that is a better song, but Cloud Busting is a more emotional song. It really does channel that um, that need to um, to have optimism in tough times. So Cloud Busting there. Uh, and I'll also pick Jig of Life from Hounds of Love. That is a, uh, another one with the Irish instruments, but it's it's just so, so grand and powerful and, um, and effective. And from Ariel, I will pick, uh, I think I'm actually going to pick Nocturne, which uh, is a bit of a strange choice, but I just love how... Uh, I think it embodies the rest of the suite. I think some of the other ones work better in context within the suite because you have the build that's come before. But in Nocturne, you get a long, slow build within that one and uh, and a payoff at the end. That's very exciting. So, but But really, my true pick would be the entire Sky of Honey suite. All right. Um, my two albums will be Hounds of Love, which I think is pretty clearly the the best kate bush album and i will uh, I'll, I'll choose ariel as well the two albums that follow the same template in terms of how they're structured i think are the two albums that perhaps best represent our artists today in terms of songs i'll go way back to the first album and say oh to be in love should be on this list of five you should hear uh, i mentioned um how much i really like the wedding list that's on this list of five uh the title track from hounds of love uh, I'm guessing it'll be on Jeff's list. It might be the best song that she ever recorded. Uh, Heads Were Dancing, the Hitler song, the Hitler dance song, that's on here. And I also will take one from Ariel from the second side, from the uh, from the instrumental suite. And I was considering Nocturne. Andrew chose that one, so I'll go, I'll go before that. I'll say Sunset. I think Sunset is... Uh, perhaps the best part of that that suite, uh, but it's really to be, as Andrew mentioned, to be appreciated as a whole, if at all possible. Jeff, over to you. Well, my top two albums, boy, this was impossible. <clears throat> I debated changing it. I debated it at the last second going for Never Forever. But no, it'll be Hounds of Love and it'll be Sensual World. And the reason I've chosen those is that it allows me to not mention any of the songs on those records. And instead, my top five will will be chosen from other albums of hers. So for my first one is from her debut, from the kick inside. It's Kite, uh, just bobbing and weaving. I love it. Delius from Never Forever. Gosh, I could pick seven songs on that album, but I love Delius most of all. Get Out of My House from The Dreaming. Well, if you want Kate Bush at her weirdest, at her most aggressively, unforgivingly weird, but succeeding in all of her avant-garde succeeds, conceits, you want Get Out of My House. Um, from the um, Ariel album, I would say Somewhere in Between, uh, which is that beautiful song that comes near the conclusion of the uh, the record, the second half of the suite. And, you know, gosh, now guys, I'm fumbling with these last few ones. I'll say Burning Bridge. It's a B-side from the Hounds of Love era, so technically I didn't lie. I didn't include a song from Hounds of Love. 
And that's five. And of course, since I am the host, screw it. I will include a sixth song. And it is from Hounds of Love. And it is, in fact, called Hounds of Love. The title track, it is just like Scott predicted. Yeah, I can't I can't make a top five without including it. It could be her best ever song. It makes me just, you know, understand why somebody would want to just throw their shoes into the water and just go run out into it and, you know, give themselves up to a force that they can barely understand or barely control. It is Kate Bush flaming romantic. It's everything that made, you know, Boy, well, there are there, are, I guess, at least tens and thousands of us who are just incredible fans of hers. I hope maybe you will be one after this as well. There we are, the Political Beats look at Kate Bush. We thank our guest, Senior Politics Correspondent at Vox, find Vox.com, at A.W. Prokop. Andrew Prokop, thanks for coming on with us here on Political Beats. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, Jeff, we meant to close out 2021 with this episode. Instead, we, we opened 2022 with this episode, so everything will still work out fine. No worries. We've got a very, very large hill to run up for the rest of this year. <laughs> At Esoteric CD on Twitter. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash political beats. We had a few, more than a few people jump on right around uh, Christmas, New Year. So I don't know if people got Christmas money for Christmas and, and are supporting us. That's fantastic. Uh, you can do it too, patreon.com slash political beats, entry level, mid level, and of course the upper level best friend, early access, high audio quality, monthly exclusive content, remastered episode, playlists, and more patreon.com slash political beats we now reach the part of the program where we say thank you individually to some of our patreon supporters and we have reached uh, after more than a year a span of which we will begin saying thank you twice to our patrons who are with us from the beginning first uh, a few new supporters zach brockmiller jim sellers and joe and we head back to the beginning to say thank you once again for being with us from the beginning and still being a Patreon supporter. Thank you, Philip Maddox, Carl, Dave Hogg, Jamie McCleary, Dan Goldbeck, Michael O'Connor, Pat Mruse, Victor Nehring, and Jeff Hojanowski, former and perhaps future guest. Thank you all for supporting us over at Patreon.com and helping this podcast stay ad-free. Also, subscribe to our feed, new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and elsewhere. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Join the conversation there. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.